and welcome back to these go to 11. Once again, I'm Nathan Bell. Joining me as always, Nathan Bartleball. Nathan, what's going on, man? Hey, not too much. How about you, Nathan? How are you? Doing well. We are in uh, week eight officially of uh, staying at home, not going out anywhere. Uh want to do a little bit of a check-in with you, Nathan. How how are you guys doing uh, being at home? How, how are things still moving along? I know Jen's in classes. I know the kids are... Uh, distance learning and, you know, doing, uh, teachers are trying to keep up with some things with them and keep them going. So how is everything working out for you all with all of this in the midst of you continuing in your normal, uh, job and, and all of that? I mean, it's a little, it's a little tricky right now because as of right now, here in Maryland and Nathan, you know, this just yesterday, they basically announced that schools are going to be closed for the rest of the school year, which I don't think was a surprise at right. all. Um, it would have been more surprising, honestly, to bring them back because they go here, um, at least for us here in Baltimore, till I think uh, we're going to go to June 22nd. Yeah. Um, what I'm curious about is whether or not we'll actually go that long. I mean, that's the plan. But uh, right now, additionally, they have the kids kind of participating in daily school. Now, yeah. not a whole day of school, but they have daily meetings, usually check-ins for a half hour, 30 minutes. Sometimes they have more than one meeting a day. My son uh, on different days has a couple of days. None of uh, They've also have specials that they, they can attend. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit touch and go because everyone's still trying to find their feet with it. it. The biggest challenge for us is right now with Jen finishing up her master's and I'm teleworking from home it's like basically just making sure everybody has enough computers right (laughs) and thankfully the kids are old enough that they can kind of sit down and i've been impressed just to kind of see uh on times like when i'll come in because a lot of their their schooling their hours that they're doing this happen like right around lunchtime so i'll be taking my lunch break and i'll be walking in and i'll see them doing their like school stuff and it's cool to see them doing that we've also been now really trying to up supplementing as far as because a lot of it what i'm finding there's a lot of uh any new materials kind of coming very slowly you know it's yes. kind of dripping through the lens of all of the review and everything because people just weren't really prepared for this so we're we're getting a little bit of new material but it's in in little pieces because you're basically giving them about a half hour every day and they still have work that they're completing so that gives us a little more latitude to work with them and uh, it's fighting the battle between you give a child a uh, electronic device for a couple hours and then you take right. it back from them. <laughs> it's like an alcoholic. Here, have a drink. No, <laughs> now, now take another drink. Quick. <laughs> so uh, as Johnny's starting to discover some of these other the all the different kinds of things you can do with video games, it's like we're also trying to limit that and monitor at the same time. And so a lot of that's. Um, there's some bumps on the road with that because, you know, he would rather be on the tablet, but at the same time he is uh, reading a lot more. He's reading the, there's a a series of books um, right now that he's reading through called the fable Haven series. He just started the first one. So it's pretty decent, like fantasy adventure series. And uh, Brandon Moles, the author, and he is going through that one right now. And he's, um, he's, I'm impressed. He's reading about, you know, 20 some page chapters a day. So, uh, that's, uh, that's good. And 
otherwise we're start i've been going through a lot of literary stuff with them i've been going through uh we've been reading a lot of Grimm's fairy tales and things like that nice. and we were reading fellowship of the ring for this so i was reading excerpts of it to them because we did watch the movies just recently and um I did find an abridged version of Beowulf that I read. To oh, cool. Because um, Tolkien, of course, draws from that. And then we were watching clips from both Outlander and the uh, – uh, only clips nice. because I can't really I can't really show them fully either right. Outlander. Outlander is a little easier to show them than actually the um, Ray Winstone Beowulf, the Robert Zemeckis animated yes. movie. Yeah. Which, uh, have you seen that one? I have so, not seen that one yet. It's interesting, although they do some things. Angelina Jolie becomes Beowulf's mother in that one, so there's, you know, it's all a little bit more sensual than you right. really feel comfortable showing them. But um, you can kind of show them Grendel and some of the scenes and some of the sequences. So to get them a feel for some of that was interesting to hear their thoughts on it and seeing what an adaptation looks like. So I'm a lot of fun with all that stuff. Uh, we are still keeping safe. It's, I mean, for us here in Baltimore, I think it's fair to say I don't know what some of the other. Uh, counties and everything look like in other states but i mean I, I think nathan it's fair to say that we're probably in this for a little bit longer yes um well governor hogan i was able to catch his um his address yesterday which uh you know being a school teacher that is exactly what we what joy and i are looking for we're looking to see what announcements are he is he going to be making what is he going to be telling the schools and so we, we've been keeping updated on it. And so what he had basically said was what he had said uh, almost about two weeks ago now, that he was going to start a, a reintegration plan. But in order for that to happen, he needed to see the numbers uh, plateau. He needed to see them uh, stop increasing. And he said in his address that we've gone seven days so far where the numbers have stayed the same. They have not, they have not increased and he said if they go another seven days, then we're going to start integrating uh, this three-phase plan that he has proposed to uh, the Maryland uh, council or government, whatever it is. So, you know, we're on the, we're on the roads to coming into the, the first phase of, okay, let's go ahead and, and let's start integrating and bringing things in slowly Let's start opening things up, or at the very least, now that we're at a place where things have started to to level out, let's start considering that. And he and he did a very good job yesterday at saying there are no guarantees. If in the next seven days we all of a sudden see a spike, then we're going to have to keep things shut down and we cannot go forward with the plan. And so I, I feel like as much as I think people were – anxiously waiting for schools to close down. And that was myself included. I, I'm with you. I, I just, I was looking at the writing on the wall saying, we're not going back to school this year. We're going to continue virtual learning to the end of the year. Uh, I can appreciate the fact that he wanted to hold off and wait to see what would happen. And so, you know. And I feel like he's done a pretty good, I mean, everyone's got to assess their, own individual situations differently in their own, you know, counties and states. But mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I feel Hogan's done a very good job here. Yes. In Maryland. Um, personally, I, I think that he has done about everything he can do to really make sure that this is happening in a way that's reasonable and safe and, constantly he, he's he's constantly updating and reassessing the situation mm -hmm. so that i don't think anyone necessarily feels as if uh 
he's just flying on autopilot at any given moment. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, but don't want to go down too much of the, uh, the, the COVID rabbit trail, rabbit trail, rabbit. Yeah. Maybe that is a better term for it. The COVID rabbit trail. Rabbit. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we've spent a lot of time talking about that since it happened today. We want to open it up and we're going to be talking about, uh, the Lord of the Rings. We're specifically going to focus on J.R.R. Tolkien's first, uh, book, the fellowship of the ring. Um, and actually, there's kind of a whole story because I know I'm going to have Tolkien fans being like, well, actually, it's not the first book because if you look at the books, then, you know, the Fellowship has several different books inside of it. And I know, I know, I know. But when you go to the store and you pick up the Fellowship of the Ring, that is its own individually bound covered book inside of itself. Um, and so we're going to be discussing that. We're going to be talking a little bit about it. How how does it compare to the movie? What things really worked well in the book? What things really worked well in the movie? What didn't work well in the book? What didn't work well in the movie? We're going we're gonna to kind of talk about and spend some time bringing all of those things together. And we want to remind listeners that next week we are going to be holding a Zoom meeting in order to invite you into this conversation, into this discussion. And so uh, Nathan and I are going to uh, be joining and coming in um, live. We're going to set up a time. We're going to set up a meet and we're going to drop all of that information into our Facebook page and into our Twitter account. We can hold up to a hundred people in the meeting. So it's going to be a first come first serve type deal. I, I don't think we're going to get a hundred people, but you never know. So I'm looking forward to interacting with the listeners on this one and seeing what their thoughts are after uh, Nathan, you and I do our thing. Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. I was, it was cool to go back. I just finished up reading it um, like, a, like a couple hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, I mean, it never used to be a thing to say, oh, yeah, I can read a book in two weeks. Right. But with as much going on, it's like it was actually pretty much a challenge to, to get in and, um, and read it. And it's been some years. Tolkien also, I, I'm sure we'll get into this, that I find reading Tolkien's a little different than reading like a quick paperback or something like that. Not because it's difficult to understand, but in the way he writes the language and mm-hmm. the kind and the amount of details he piles into it, I am always I always kind of like want to linger and read the page a couple times or something like that. So I found myself kind of doing the savoring thing and I was like, I don't really have time right. <laughs> for this right now, even though it's kind of the idea, you know, it, it's not one. I can just sort of, you know, maybe when I originally read it years ago, you kind of breathlessly page through it and read it. But it's something I kind of linger on more. And so I was trying to do a little bit of that, but also understanding that there wasn't a lot of time. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I want to start off by saying before we we dive in is, uh, you know, we, we're going to make um, – some, I think, uh, critical remarks. I don't think they're going to be unkind. I think they're just, they're, they're going to be preferences. You know, anything has a preference. You go and you watch a movie, there's going to be a preference there on whether or not you enjoy that movie and what you did or did not enjoy about it. And the same thing is going to happen with the Lord of the Rings. But before getting into all of that, I want to say that one of the things that I think has to be acknowledged by uh, lovers and critics alike of of the books is that he set the groundwork for a lot of the fantasy that we have today. Uh, 
uh, J.K. Rowling, uh, author of the Harry Potter series, has come out and fully admitted in interviews that she grew up on Lord of the Rings and much of her imaginative uh, world that she built within Hogwarts and, and those characters came from her influences of J.R. Tolkien. Let's face it, when we look at Gary Gygax and what he did with Dungeons and Dragons, much of what he did came from, and again, the, you know, these are his words, uh, came from his influence of the, from the Lord of the Rings. And so a lot of the high fantasy things that we have in today's society come from Tolkien's world building that he did all those years ago. And to be fair, Tolkien himself would admit that his world building came from the stories and the legends that he read even years before that, the the Arthurian legends that he read about, the Norwegian legends like Beowulf that he read about, uh, all of these things came together to influence him. And the reason why I think that's important to acknowledge and admit is because, there again, there are serious critics who are like, well, it's really not that great compared to X, Y, and Z. And I, and I think that, again, first of all, that's that's a fair assessment. That's a fair view that someone might hold. But remember, in critiquing that, he set a lot of foundation and groundwork. And, I mean, let's face it, with, you know, 50-plus million books sold worldwide, he did something right to, you know, spark the interest and imaginations of people all over the world. So any, any kind of opening thoughts that you have, Nathan? Um, well, I'm, you know, I don't know about using book sales cause then, you know, you get into the whole twilight argument. Oh, that's not, fair enough. <laughs> not, rather not broach. However, I think what you're, you're saying is right on in terms of recognizing his, his place in all of this. And I think the thing that strikes me rereading this book which I read when I was younger and probably I would say I did end up reading it before I read a lot of like the traditional fantasy books mm-hmm. that came after it. All of the, you know, the Terry Goodkind and all that kind of thing that, that, that came uh, some bit after it. And, you know, even Star Wars and things like that all sort of came after Lord of the Rings. But the thing that I think is interesting about it is that when you're you pick it up and you read it, it doesn't, when you go back to it, the memory of it is a little different thing than coming to it. When you go back to it, I'm struck by how it, how much it doesn't read like a fantasy novel. Yes. And I think that that is the difference because we have this giant genre that, that is, you know, fantasy fiction and whether you are, uh, you know, Gary Gygax making Dungeons and Dragons over here whether you are J.K. Rowling or George R.R. Martin or Robert Jordan or any of these people, and some of them obviously were more were fair, were much more close to uh, not exactly aping Tolkien, but just taking his world and playing in it. You know? Right, right. I think it would be safe to say that Robert Jordan's world is very, very uh, much like Tolkien's universe. Uh, it, it is taking Tolkien's universe and kind of adapting it a little bit but keeping it largely the same the the shannara chronicles are the kind of the mm-hmm. same deal it's really hard not to see those as um lifting right the the basic fantasy template that tolkien laid out but when you're reading the actual lord of the rings 
and particularly Fellowship of the Ring, I think because it's setting every so much stuff in place, it's you you recognize why it's such a beloved book. And I think what the thing about it is it is very unique in the world of fantasy fiction in that it's clear to me that he didn't set out to write a fantasy story. Right. Uh, what I mean by that is he set out to essentially write a almost like an anthropological or historical sort of record yes. entwined with an epic story. Uh, and the epic stories that he was connecting with, it's interesting because now as I'm, I just mentioned, you know, reading to my kids like the Grimm's fairy tales and, and the poem, the epic poems and Beowulf and stuff like that. And these are all sources that Tolkien himself has cited, including Nordic and Norse mythologies mm-hmm. and things like that. And so he's weaving these things into a story that feels very grounded in a certain kind of relatability in, re- in, in a real world sense mm-hmm. that I think people who never read it, you know, they're like, Oh, Lord of the Rings. And if all they know of Lord of the Rings is that it's high fantasy, right? even though Tolkien sort of invented that world in a sense, I mean, he isn't the only one who's ever doing it, but before really Lord of the Rings, a lot of the fantasy you had was very different. And it was rooted in this idea of here are fairy stories and they are for children and then there are other adventure epic stories over here. He's taking both of those and combining them and yet then telling you a adventure story that is a more full-blooded adventure story in the vein of like you know uh the, the great ad- the great adventure stories by Rudyard Kipling or you yeah. know the last of the Mohicans these sorts of stories that were intended more for adults, you know, um Ivanhoe, things like that. He's taking those kinds of stories and marrying them to fairy tales, very simplistic stories. This one, you get right into it and you suddenly realize we're dealing with, we start with the most mundane element of the fantasy world, the people who are most like us, the person holding the book, (laughs) or at least the most like the person reading the book. Yes. Um, Or writing the book, I should say, because, you know, we are introduced to an entire race of people that sound very much like old English uh, literary professors and uh, in their habits and in their behaviors. Uh, they maybe are a little less intellectually curious, but I think so what I'm struck with is just what a interesting read it is from the perspective of you don't even think of it as a fantasy story while you're reading it. You're yeah. looking at it at this, at this entire world that has been built and you're ushered right into it and it feels very relatable it feels very much you can identify with all of these different pieces Mm -hmm. you may not agree with everything he's saying but you can identify with these pieces and then in the middle of it he's telling this this very full-blooded adventure story that's told in relatively simple terms the rest the the world's not simple the story i think is Mm -hmm. yeah and i i think one of the things to remember is tolkien even admitted this himself that uh, you know, this all started with a bedtime story that he was telling to his children called The Hobbit. The Hobbit was the first of this series to be released. Now, Tolkien had been working on languages and stories almost his entire life. And so, you know, you see bits and pieces of things. And a lot of people think that this was, uh, you know, kind of sprang from his experiences in the war. And I think 
I think some of his experiences definitely played into that. But if you if you were to look at and study Tolkien's life, you would see that he was he he was fascinated with mythology. He was fascinated with the Arthurian legends and all of these things that really formed and developed him. And he started working on his own languages when he was a very young child, making up words and and developing syntax for languages. And so we see that really he had been primed from an early age to start and and build this historical mythological epic and that's what he had set out to do he set up to 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 give us a uh mythology of europe the the origin setting of Europe. And so we see we see it starting with the Hobbit as a children's bedtime story. It develops into this long uh, epic journey into uh, Middle Earth, into this world that he created and expands upon that. And then years later, uh, he passes away and his son Christopher takes over and begins collecting and working on the really the the whole history around this in the Silmarillion and then other of these legends that came out of the Silmarillion he he begins to finish his father's work you know a lot of people you look at that and you see you know the that Christopher Tolkien's the one who really put these things together but it was based on very detailed notes that his father had written about this story already, and he just did not live long enough to to publish all the works that were in his brain. And when you think about the language that he developed, and, and yes, it's a made up language, but let's you know, in the words of uh, in the words of Thor, all all, all language is made up. Um, you know that in the words of Thor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you remember that from uh, yes. from the Infinity <laughs> Infinity War? <laughs> Um, you know, that's a made up word. All words are made up, you know, that he actually developed a cohesive language that you can study and you can break it apart and it makes sense. You can read it, you can write it and you can speak it. Um, I mean, that's just his brain for languages was phenomenal and, and using that and, and building this world that he developed, you really, you don't feel like you're reading a fantasy. You you feel like you're reading a history. You feel like you're reading a history of the things that happened in a bygone age before, you know, our, our quote unquote modern sensibilities stepped in and started computerizing and tracking everything. You know, you just, you feel like you're re- picking up an ancient tome and you're reading the history of this group of people who, who saved the world. So it, since we're talking about the first book here, The Fellowship of the Ring, um, what I would like to do, if you're good with it, Nathan, um, and not that we go through in great detail every chapter, but you know, I had taken some notes as I went through, and I think we can kind of talk about it. I'd like to talk about it kind of from the beginning to the end and the end yeah. of the first book. I agree with you that I think that these clearly are separate books, and indeed The Hobbit had already existed prior to this. Uh, so you have The Hobbit, and then you have The Fellowship of the Ring. And I think what's really interesting is the very beginning, when you get to this prologue, if you're someone who's read The Hobbit, you can see him creating a delineation. And, and you can really see how different those books are, because The Hobbit truly does still feel like a elaborate 
bedtime story. Yes. It still yes. feels very much like a fairy tale. It has lots of – it has the developings of that language and it has those – songs and it has that style and that flavor are definitely there but it is told in a very different tone mm-hmm. and that tone is here's the bedtime story and in a sense you know yes, it, is, it is told that way and then the the kind of thing if you're thinking about you know we're so familiar with these things it's hard to separate them when you read the prologue here the kind of brilliant thing that the prologue does and i feel like people who try to adapt the the screenwriters who try to adapt prequels and make you know, even right. Jackson trying to, to go back and then do The Hobbit, everyone trying to come up with the most clever way to do something. It's almost genius in a way what Tolkien does here to bridge this over to a book that feels a little bit more serious or a little bit more for adults is that you are reading an encapsulated history when you realize that what you're essentially reading is the is the book, the historical document right. that in court that 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 Bilbo, the character from the fairy story you read began and then as you know eventually it's completed by others but it's now presented as history it's presented and not just history not not long ago far away once upon a time land but a world that eventually will become the world we live in i think right. that's the thing that sometimes people forget and that wasn't really um that the, the movies don't really touch upon is the fact that you know, he tells you from the beginning that this is the history that Middle Earth uh, is a, is the sort of prehistory of 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 England, of Europe, of right. this world that he lives in, and that the fairy stories and the mythologies all spring here. But now you're reading about it as if it's news and it's been documented mm-hmm. and it's an actual anthropological document and history. And you start talking about the hobbits right off the bat, and he gives you so many details about them, and you do realize they're very much like people they're like us you know yes. they are uh they're all really concerned with the things that are right in front of them and i think it's interesting that he introduces a fantasy world not with the big moment because now even the films did this you get to see the history of sauron and you see all those things right but that is not present in the beginning of this book yes it's not present in the prologue you the really the only story that gets uh laid out is the story that we already knew from the hobbit if you had read the hobbit right so we do kind of retread and go back over thorin and the dwarves just a little bit mostly it's Gollum and the ring because Mm -hmm. that's the other thing that's interesting is in that book that interlude with Gollum is neat and creepy but the ring doesn't really stand out in the hobbit Mm -hmm. it's a tool that he uses like all the other tools like sting Mm -hmm. and he uses it to to in the midst of the battle, but the ring doesn't have an emphasis upon it. Then you get to this book and you it becomes very clear before you're even through the prologue and, and through the birthday party that the ring is much more important than yes. you guessed. Yes. So this genius way of present and he grounds it because he gives us characters that don't want to go on any adventures. Mm-hmm. They are not particularly heroic and they don't necessarily believe in all the magic. Right. They're skeptical about dragons and trolls or all these things. And so he's created this fantasy world that's in its prime and or although not really in its prime, it seems to be almost fading away. A lot of the magic is fading away. And you see that almost initially that some magic is going and some magic is trying to rise to the surface again. And he's got these characters that he brings out. And then Bilbo is not the same Bilbo that you remember from he's not right. this kind of wide-eyed hobbit he's kind of a crackpot 
Right. Or he's presented as a crackpot because of the experiences he previously had. Everyone in his community thinks he's a little bit nuts, and he kind of is a little bit nuts. Right, right. Well, and and we get the sense very early on that that something has gone on to him. There's an outside influence that has begun to affect him. It's begun to take hold in his life, and we and we get that sense early on that. That it's not just his his neighbors and his relatives that think he's crazy because he upped and went on this adventure all these years ago, but we we find very uh, very we find out very soon that something is holding his attention and he can't get it off his mind. And and we do find out that it that it is the ring. The ring is what is captivating his mind. It's it fills his thoughts day by day. And so we we find out very early on in this story that uh, there is going to be something up with this evil that is is going to be difficult for him to let go of. But in the midst of the tension, I think Tolkien does a great job at expanding on the world and drawing us into this festive time that's going on. You just get the sense of this joy in this presence of things that are happening during this birthday party. But you find out too that it's not the traditional way that we would think of birthdays here and now instead of, uh, you know, people bringing birthday gifts to, to the person whose birthday it is, that person supplies the gifts to the others, you know, and supplies all the food and the, and the drink, which is the ale and, uh, you know, all the festivities, it, it is on the person whose birthday it is to present the biggest, best bash that they can for. I'm doing something wrong because I feel like that's still what happens to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's Nathan's birthday. What's he going to get us this time? <laughs> it's right. right. I got to redo this, Nathan. You have to make some better plans next year. Right, right. I didn't have anything at all this year. Um, but, uh. well, yeah, you know, and you bring up an interesting point there, which I think anyone who might be listening to this and for some reason hasn't read the books, please go back. Seen the <laughs> please go back and read the books. You do that first. Well, here's the thing you can't really ruin these. Uh, right. And what I mean by ruin or spoil these is the word I want right. to use. You can't really spoil these because it isn't about. The it, it is the journey, right? But the way the journey is written, and if you have watched the movies and you think that these books have nothing to offer you, it'll be a completely different experience. Yes, I mean yes. I've read these books six or seven times before this, and uh, this one alone six or seven times before this, and and I've seen the movies multiple times, mm-hmm. and I've even seen you know the you know the not so great animated movies, the Rankin and Bass animated <laughs> movies, and even the Ralph Bakshi animated movies. And and I've seen productions of The Hobbit and, and, and of uh, The Lord of the Rings. And this book is still completely unique, I think, in the experience mm-hmm. it gives because it is so much in love with the writing. It's so yes. much in love with the languages and the words and its characters that you can't, I don't think, if you come to this with an open mind, that you can't get caught up in it. Because yes. it's... Again, it's a story. It isn't a fantasy. It doesn't identify itself that way uh, solely. Right. But so it's a lot more cheerful, I guess, is what I was going to say. The entire tone of this book, even though it deals with darkness, even though it deals 
with fantasy adventure and eventually there are darkness and monsters mm-hmm. he isn't as nearly as interested in that i mean there mm-hmm. the chapters involving the birthday party are longer than these big action scenes right the bridge casa doom and things like that like if you look at this i mean he describes hobbits eating breakfast <laughs> in more detail than you get the balrog uh, yes uh, although that isn't a weakness uh, right it, it, it just gives the world, and I think when he gets to some of the monsters, it's not like quite like C.S. Lewis where he just says, they're so horrible I couldn't tell you what they look like. Right. It's not that bad. <laughs> That's a cheat. Okay, guys. But I – and I'm not knocking Lewis, but I mean you know because that was more fairy tale. But I remember there were points even as a kid. I'm like, wait, what? Right. I want to it's know like what H. they H. look like. It's like H.P. Lovecraft. If I describe this, you go insane, so I will not. <laughs> and – so, but he, by the time you get to those chapters, he has fleshed this world out so much that he's, he kind of lets your imagination do the rest. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to be fair, he wasn't really interested in writing this big, uh, epic action scene where he describes every little movement of the hobbits or every little movement of the characters. But again, he will tell you what was on the menu. Yeah, <laughs> the, well, some of the parties, and he will describe the nature of hobbits. I mean, you you read yeah. within that that they are that while they're not uh, particularly clever, so to speak, that they they are uh, clever enough that if most uh, people are going to walk by them, they can hide themselves and not be seen. That they travel very light on foot and could leave you know no footprints, and so we get just enough to know their nature. And to know what type of folk they are, that they love good earth, they love their tobacco, they love their pipes. And so while, you know, while you're right, we're not going to get, you know, they waddled up and down the road or anything like that. We are going to get enough of the sense of who this people is, as you said earlier, to be able to relate to them and to be able to to say, man, yeah, I, I enjoy my pipe every once in a while. I enjoy a good ale every once in a while. And he connects it back again to those... When I say fairy stories or fairy tales, I mean we are usually thinking of specifically some of those German stories like Little Red Riding Hood and stuff like that. But literal fairy tales, the stories that explain where your shoes went or uh, what's happening in the forest at night and why some people go in and don't come out or changelings when babies are swapped. You know, the literal fairy folk that live in the forest that are mysterious and magical and have these lives that we have no idea of. And it turns out that they basically live like we do. Yes. (laughs) And uh, at least at least the, the hobbits, which, you know, so you've got this idea of what do the little people in the woods do? And while they sit around, they smoke tobacco and they drink ale and they don't want to leave their homes. Right. And they like, uh, you know, so they would be right at home during this quarantine. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. And and the quarantine's maybe not a bad comparison here because then they, they're they drawn into a situation that they don't, uh, you know, Bilbo decides to go on the adventure. Frodo is sort of thrust into it in a right. different way. Um, but I, a couple of things I want to talk about because we would have forever to talk I about. I know, this. I know. We're still, we're still with the Hobbits. <laughs> it's probably going to be like a multi-series thing here. But I did want to say, look at the way that the characters interact, which I think we keep talking about them being human in a sense yes. and some characters are less human and relatable than others but i'm thinking like well, something that, that that bilbo says and it's actually what i do like about the movies is they capture a lot of the language not all mm-hmm. of it but they capture some of the more poetic pieces and are able to you know, it's just lines mind you but they right. usually get them in there somewhere yes and i think that uh one of the lines that's so 
evocative about Bilbo when you meet him later. And, and it, it, takes into account everything that he's seen, everything he's feeling. Also, the book makes it very clear that one of the things he's dealing with while he's dealing with the ring are some hanger-on relatives that just yeah. won't let go. <laughs> you get that in the movie the movie a little bit, yeah. but in the book, his entire plan of escape is basically based around finding some way to throw these leeches off of his right. scent. <laughs> there are, there, there, I, I came back and realized, wow, they're a much bigger thorn in his side. Yeah. Then I remember them. It's not just them. It's the whole – because he has an age. That's the other thing that's freaking everyone out a little right. bit. And so he almost has Gandalf set up as a scapegoat because Gandalf got blamed the first time through. And he's, I think he's kind of <laughs> counting on Gandalf is going to get blamed the second time through. Uh, and it's in that. The, the interactions between Bilbo and Gandalf – and Bilbo says to him, I feel like butter scraped yes. over – uh, a little bit of butter scraped over too much bread. And that image – I feel right now like butter scraped yeah. <laughs> too much bread. I've yeah. felt like it for about a week and a half now. Yeah. And it's so evocative. It's so a beautiful picture, not just of like where he is and what's going on with him, but also the feeling that this ring, this temptation right. has done to him. You know, it has basically left him uh, spread bare and right. there's nothing, there's not, there's not anything left. And he doesn't even know why. And the interactions though, between he and, uh, Gandalf are captured in the movie, but they're so much more interesting in the book because yes. they bicker and they are seen as weak and frail, both of them at different points in time. Right. And even that discussion where they discuss what's going to happen with the ring, uh, they lose their temper, mm -hmm. but they bicker like old friends. And you see frailties here. This isn't the grand great wizard. This isn't the heroic little guy. These are just two guys have known each other for a long time and are dealing with this situation. And, Gandalf in the book, he does, you know, Ian, Hall, Ian uh, McKellen and Ian Holm, who plays Bilbo, yes. they both gave him, they gave both those characters great humanity. And certainly Gandalf, you see some frailties and you see him get angry and grumpy. But it's just, you know, he kind of does come off like an old crackpot a little bit. Not, right. not in a making fun of him sort of way. Right. But he's a guy who, he is this figure that people forget how powerful he really is because. He he kind of is just wearing this humanity right. very, very plainly for everybody to see. And I was just struck how realistic and how organic their interactions are before Bilbo leaves. He's making fun of Bilbo a little bit. He's like, nobody's going to read it. Right. So he tells him about the book, you know, and he's yeah. at this moment he goes, I've come up with an adventure. I come up with an ending and he lived happily the end of his days. And I'm sure he will, but no one will ever read it. Right. <laughs> Right. Oh, and and to your point of what you're saying, you know, the, I think the movie captures captures these characters so well. One of the things that I know I was slightly disappointed with between the book and the movie, and, and I think this would have been an easy fix in the movie, is you get a real sense of just how long this is taking yes, to unfold yes. and unfurl in the book where in the movie it's kind of like you feel like Gandalf goes away and then he's coming back within the next week to to set all this in motion and it's really you know it's something 12 like 12 years yeah something like that right yeah like, maybe not 12 I'm, I'm getting no I'm I getting, think you're right I, know, I think it's, been it's like four years 12 years was from uh from Bay I was just reading Beowulf today and there's a point when it goes forward in time I uh, I've actually got the book here I think it I think it's been three or four years but it's been years right is the point it, and, I think it's only like three years three and or by four the years time between when he goes, goes away, away and comes back, and comes back. yeah but the reality is is even with that by the time uh Frodo like these events all start and by the time Frodo actually sets out on his journey it's been like 20 years 
It's uh, it been that long? I think so. Yeah. I think it's thirty when when Frodo celebrates his birthday, and then it's fifty when he sets out on his adventure. So I believe it's a twenty-year span there. When uh, because isn't the uh, the kind of tween years? Don't the tween years end when he hits thirty? And then his adventure started when Bilbo started when he was fifty. So it's I believe it's a thirty-year time frame or a 20-year time frame from when all of these events first start happening with the birthday party and the celebrations and that joint birthday celebration with uh, with Bilbo and and Frodo. And then there's this whole so, time. Yeah, so the entire time frame is of roughly about 20 years. Yeah. And, and I just felt like – I felt like the movie could have given us a sense of that time even by just saying at the bottom, you know – four years later or, you know, 16 years later, instead, I felt like you're left to be, to, to look at this going, wow, Gandalf took off and he's back in the next week and Frodo's leaving right now. But, but there's a whole thing going on here that really, uh, this conspiracy that Gandalf is trying to uncover and he's trying to figure out this riddle that he can't get off of his mind. And so you get the sense of not only the urgency, but you also get the sense of his time of study and preparation. You get that thoughtfulness that comes from him. Well, it also makes makes most of the events seem less uh, random or convenient. Yes. You know, because it's like, oh, there's Bilbo's birthday, and then the ring become, comes into Gandalf's uh, you know, view, but then it seems like a week later, Sauron has captured right. uh, Gollum, right? right? And he's being tortured. And yet, the timeline is really, you're right, like the timeline is a, before he ever comes back to Frodo, it's like about three years. Yes. But then there's a couple of years where Gandalf goes back and forth with Frodo. Yeah. And he's keeping his eye on him and he's unsure. And then, uh, You've got Gollum gets captured by Sauron's forces, and that you know they're they're doing in here is like three thousand and one. <laughs> yeah, is, you know when Bilbo turns a um, you know one hundred and eleven, and then it's thirty seventeen when he's captured by Sauron's forces. Gollum yeah. is, and so you go from there, and then it's like a year late. Then you've got the the Fellowship kind of goes on its way and does its thing, and in the book, of course, there's a whole characters that are cut. Right. That, uh, and holy instance, Tom Bombadil, of course, we should have to talk really about him. Um, or we're not really talking about the, the book experience. What did you think about the Tom Bombadil character? Bef- because Before we get to that, I want to back up real quick because this is another issue that I had with the movie. And that was the portrayal of Mary and Pippin. Because I felt like the book portrayed them as far more clever than you got from the movie. In the movie, when you hear, oh, fool of a took and you just see all the mistakes and bumblings that go on with them uh, in the movie, the book really sets them up as these clever hobbits who, who are going to be with Frodo through thick and thin. They're not quite the fools that we take them for. You actually see the sense that hobbits can have and, and the craftiness that hobbits can have and that set them apart uh, in their loyalties. And so I, I just wanted to make a mention of that because every time I go back and I, I read the book and I see the movie, I'm probably most disappointed with that aspect of their characters because, you know, there's this long journey and I get it. This this is a movie. You cannot put everything in there. Um, It would just, it would be far too long. But what I thought that the book did was, okay, they're in on this adventure with him and they're going to sit him down and be like, look, 
we know a whole lot more than you've been, you know, letting on. And we're a lot cleverer than you thought we were. And we're going with you. And you're not going to say anything about it. Um, and so I just wanted to mention that because because that kind of takes place before Tom Bombadil. Um, yeah. And there is there's definitely more of Marion Pippin in the book. And it's not that there's just more of them, but there's more of all these characters interacting. Uh, the elves that they meet in the forest mm-hmm. is a scene I think was just relegated to the special editions yes. of the films. And it's just a scene of watching the elves leave. But they have an entire interaction and interlude with those elves yes. in the forest. And it's the first time they've ever had interaction with the elves. So it's a it's an interaction that happens before Rivendell. It's an interaction that happens before Elrond and before later uh, Galadriel and things like that. And it's their first interaction with the elves. Um, and so, yes, you do get to see Merry and Pip. And I will stay going back and watching the movies. There is clearly a decision to make Mary and Pippin sort of partial comic relief. The right. same thing happens to Gimli. I mean, one could say it's a little more egregious with Gimli. Um, yeah. Because he's not particularly a comic relief character in the book. Right. Um, right. I mean, he, he can he can be sort of a source of it, I suppose. But, I mean, a lot of that's manufactured. I'm not saying it's bad per se, but a lot of it's manufactured. It's the same thing with Mary and Pippin. However, I do think – that if you want – that the films do still try to give them this agency that they are they are still brave. They are still clever. They are still competent. They're the ones that get Frodo to the ferry yeah. uh, immediately, and they go right to it. You know, They don't hesitate. They say, hey, we're going to go to you – know, we got to get you to Buckleberry Ferry. Yep. And they go and they do that. And, even, and of course, towards the end, um, when you know the, the scenes with Boromir and everything, they are taking their – their proper place where they make a decision to do something so that Frodo can do something else. And of course in the other films, they are also, so I think, I think they're well represented, but I think the issue is none of the hobbits. The problem, I guess again, ahead of myself here, but I think one of the problems with the movies is that the hobbits kind of don't become the, they're not the centerpiece of their story anymore. Right. Yeah. Films. It's a different, it's a different experience. Uh, The films are everybody's story. And the the big guys can be more of the action scenes, and so they are. So the humans do, do come back to the forefront. In Tolkien's story, really is the Hobbits. I mean, it right. is the Hobbits' adventure. And so, yes, Merry and Pippin and Frodo and Sam, honestly, are all victims of that in right. the movies. Yeah. So, um, so to your question of Tom Bombadil, I, I, th- I think honestly, in this case, this is one of those pieces that worked beautifully in the book. I, I love the setup of Tom Bombadil in the book. I love that kind of way over, even though I, I know the background of this and it doesn't, it really, if you read the book and you're like, this doesn't make sense, it's because it doesn't. <laughs> Um, in all honesty, you know, Tolkien's said, you know, this was a character he kind of threw in there because his kids enjoyed this character in this scene. And so this was kind of built up in the story. I think it works in the story. I don't know that it would have worked in the book uh, or I'm sorry. I don't know that it would have worked in the movie. It works in the book. I don't think it would have worked in the movie. And a lot of that is, uh, I think, too, due to the fact that let's face it, for the first quarter of the book, they're really being chased by the, uh, you know, by these the creatures, Nazgul. the Nazgul, uh, and and in the movie, you know, you don't you don't quite have that. That's you know, that's not. It, 
that's not what's going on. That's not the focus. But in the book, you get this urgency and you see how they're just how they're narrowly escaping at the beginning from the Shire. And then once they enter the old forest, um, they're really doing everything they can to avoid it. And you almost get this sense of relief because they're not being chased by the Nazgul anymore, but there are other dangers that are occurring and you get this safe haven that comes in with Tom Bombadil and you get a little bit more exposition. And one of the things that I think is cool with Tom Bombadil is, you know, Tolkien could have just decided, you know, Hey, just give the ring to Tom and let it be over with. And in the book they explain, no, we can't do that because, you know, Tom would just as easily lose the ring um, as anything else, you know, he just, he has no interest in it. And I enjoy those characters in, in stories. I enjoy those characters who rise above it, but they're also not the ones who can solve it. And so for me, his character was, was enjoyable in the book, but, um, I don't think it would have fit well at all in the movie. Yeah. And I, it's probably right. At least they wouldn't have fit within the Peter Jackson version Mm -hmm. of Lord of the Rings. Um, and I remember when the film came out, the original film came out, and of course everyone is going to be comparing it to the books. And I, I think it might've been uh, critic uh, Roger Ebert or somebody who had said that he felt like the Hollywood that existed in 2001 when Lord of the Rings was made might have not quite been up to making Lord of the Rings as Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, if you will. He mm-hmm. felt that though the, and I'm not sure, I'm sure I agree with him, but I know what he was getting at that the Hollywood that made, Wizard of Oz, which is also not an exactly uh, uh, accurate or faithful version of, of Baum's book, right. but that the more gentle Hollywood, and I mean, not the, the actual Hollywood itself, because it wasn't gentle at all, but right. that the kinds of films, that that sort of patience was what was needed to make a faithful ad- adaptation of Fellowship of the Ring. And I get what he's saying. And I, I look at, I've been watching some older movies with the kids, and it's like, it's true that uh, even as patient as Fellowship of the Rings for a giant big blockbuster movie, to spend that much time in the Shire and everything like that, mm-hmm. and then to have these extended editions, I mean, that looks really, really patient. But I do understand that the tone of it is big action fantasy as opposed to big fantasy drama, which is sort of more what it is. And the the, the worlds that exist in movies like The Adventures of Robin Hood and Wizard of Oz, they could have supported a Tom Bombadil character. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that the Peter Jackson version could could incorporate him properly mm-hmm. uh, yeah. because he's an interesting character. Because I don't necessarily think this is the case, but you know, lots of people who kind of study this and always want to kind of view Tolkien through a Christian lens. Not that it's not there, but even Tolkien himself sort of disregarded that. He just, you know, I think he said as a practical applicability in his novels he wanted them to feel like this is the world we live in with all the elements faith and everything else and then he wasn't writing any sort of allegory but tom bombadil has been identified as okay the ring doesn't affect him mm-hmm. like at all uh even uh, that's the interesting thing that gandalf can't take the ring because normally someone as powerful as gandalf you would think okay you can take this for a little while if the little hobbit can do it why can't you and he explains why he can't because right. It would be disastrous, you know. Right. Uh, there's only even for, once Frodo's got the ring, there's only so much he can do with it. But through Gandalf, it's like a magnifying glass with the sun. And but Tom Bombadil can carry the ring. He kind of goes where he wants. He doesn't. No one's even clear how long he's been around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like you said too, that level of of 
ancientness, if you will, or that level of being outside of the world has made it so that he might not be keeping track of things. Right. <laughs> that the, the, the temporal world that we have to deal with, the leaving of the elves and the battle in Sauron aren't really big deals to him. You know? Right, right. And so he's more concerned with growing fe- fresh vegetables and and picking right. you know daisies for you know his wife than he is for you know the the cares of the battles of the world you know that's just where his and thoughts so, are well i well i don't think he is god in this story i think he is one per- potential perspective that someone might have of god mm-hmm. of someone who isn't affected by the cares but does he care enough about us Right, that it's going to matter right now. So right. again, I don't think he's God, but I think he is certainly the perspective. And this is where you get into how the war and Tolkien's experiences in the war could have opened up a door for, for what happens. The adventure they go on is where the war experiences come in, right? Yes. You know, yes. the feeling I'm not a part, coming back and not feeling you're a part of things anymore, or that you can't be a part again. And then the feeling of, I know you're here, I know you care, I know you've got the ability, but I still feel alone in the trenches, you know. And that's kind of at Tom Bombadil. He's a small, he's this small sort of like uh, oasis where you can come and there's re- they get refreshed, but he doesn't, re- they got to go without him, you know. He yes. can't do this thing for them. And so all his silly songs and all that stuff aside, he's an interesting character because he's, he provides a little bit of solace. He's a little bit of comfort, but ultimately he can't do this for them. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, along with him, we begin to, to meet more and more characters that, that really help develop the story. I mean, you know, just kind of briefly mentioning, we come to, you know, the, the, the Barrow Downs and, and the Barrow Whites and, you know, the, the kind of side adventure where, you know, Tom Bombadil has clearly warned them, you need to stay on the path. This is what you need to do. And then, you know, the very next day they get lost and turned around. So they got to call on him for help again. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. I'll lead you, I'll lead Some you that, out. That does get tedious. I, I do admit that. <laughs> there, a token does that a lot. Like the, the hobbits get lost, they need help, and some magical character shows up and, and drags them out of help again, you know? Right. And uh, that happens with all the characters quite a bit. Um, yes. You don't feel it as much in the books because the episodic nature of it is every experience when you're reading it for the first time is an opportunity to meet something new. Yes. Like the Barrow Whites or Tom Bombadil, or a new group right. of elves, or a new group of orcs, or something like that. Right. And um, and I think I think it works in the books because it illustrates the points that are constantly made in the books. You know that that uh, regardless of of who you are, you know, and again, looking at this from uh, a Christian perspective, regardless of what Tolkien says in terms of looking at this as from one particular religion, there's a higher power at work. And and that's kind of been the emphasis throughout all of this is that there there are you know that that really you know famous quote there are forces for good and for evil, and so that there are, there are wills that are are working things for good and for evil, and so just like that, you know the ring was made out of evil, and the ring is trying to turn people and and get back to his master. There are also forces that are working for good behind the scenes that are also of great power and strength that are working in order to balance that it's, it's almost a, I mean, if you were going to view it from any lens, there's almost a, a karmaic, you know, yeah. balance to this, you know, that, that it almost has more in, in lines with like, um, 
almost the, the Greek yang. sense of fate. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the, uh, a, a Greek sense of fate where, you know, well, yes, uh, even early on in fellowship, it happens later where they, they place it differently in the movie, but the conversation about why Bilbo would let Gollum live yes. is much earlier in this book. And of course it's done for many reasons. It's to demonstrate how important that sequence was, but it also sets up the concept of judging, uh, making your own judgments, you know, deciding whether someone should or shouldn't live. Right. Whereas Bilbo does it out of pity, not, and, 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 and basically grace and not any decision that I should kill you or not kill you, you know? Right. Uh, and so it's interesting that Frodo starts talking about from the perspective of very, you know, it's almost like why we kill Hitler kind of deal. It's like, Oh, well, why don't you just kill him? when we start making decisions about who to kill and not to kill to right. keep things intact. And then Gandalf addresses it, but it isn't just through, as you said, it's not through just singular lens of Christian forgiveness. It does have a more fatalistic bent that, mm. well, this was meant to happen. And this character had to stay alive for this purpose. And, uh, but I think that this stuff works. Some of it does feel clunky. I think mm-hmm. now, uh, but I, I, I think it works. And, man, I don't know about you, Nathan. I feel like we need a separate second episode of this before we get to. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe we can put it on Facebook. I don't know what you think about it. I'm, I'm open for uh, discussing more. I don't know how you want to handle it. I, um, we certainly haven't gotten to nearly. Sure, sure. I, I'm good. I'm good with going. I mean, I, I'm up and awake, and I think our listeners will enjoy a, a little bit of a longer episode. What I'll do is instead of releasing it tomorrow night, I'll drop it tonight. So I stay up late now anyway. I'll go ahead and and oh, put the drop on it tonight. Me, so. Yeah, a few weeks ago I did a four-hour podcast. So I, I don't think we'll go that long. Day. We won't no, go that no. long. But uh, but um. Yeah, but I, what I think we should be good to do, if you want to, I think it would be good because we have we were going to kind of separate this, and we are sort of doing movies and books at the same time. Why don't we talk about some of the elements that don't exist in the movies? I, only because I do suspect that more people, and hopefully maybe it's not the case, but yeah. I suspect more people have seen the movies more recently than they've read the books. And, and I think that's fair. Uh, so, kind of looking at you know the movies and, and the things, you know, one of the things that struck me. Even from early on, uh, let's talk about just uh, naturally flowing into, you know, um, into Bree and the Inn at the Prancing Pony. We, we, we meet Aragorn. In uh, in Aragorn, something that struck me in reading the book and seeing the movie that really I hadn't I had forgotten about was Aragorn is more uncertain of himself in the book. He has more self doubt, and I think that really it works because. You know, the movie, it's this man who we see is groomed to be king. He is the one who is, you know, the, the heir of Elendil. And uh, he, is, he is supposed to take, you know, take up the, the sword, the, it being reformed and remade. And he's going to go into battle, reclaim Gondor, vanquish evil. Um, but we know he, he's hesitant in the movies. But we don't really see why. And the books actually give us this this more uncertain man that, of course, he's born from greatness. He has a great personality. He has a great character. He's he's trustworthy. He's loyal. He's he's passing these tests, but he's very unsure of himself. And and we see constantly in reading um, this book how 
you know, by the end of the book, he's like, I don't know what to do because every decision that I've made has led us the wrong way. So, I mean, he almost gets to the point where I, you know, waiting for him to say, let me just flip a coin and decide what to do. Um, you know, he's not the strong, confident, decisive leader that we see from the beginning of the movies. Um, and, and that's something that I think is, is missing a little bit that, that helps to pull away from his nature and character, um, a little bit. What are your kind of thoughts on, on that? Certainly, because Viggo Mortensen, who who plays him well, but he, he definitely I think when you get to some of his characters, they are only in this mold of the kind of faded hero. Yeah, you know, and so like we talked about Gandalf and we talked about Bilbo, that there are a lot of nuances to Aragorn. He's a very different character. He's not nearly as romantic, heroic lead. He is a guy who's um, not entirely sure where he fits in because he is very aware of his frailties, which is represented in the movie i think but you're right because of what he feels to be the shadow over who he is Mm -hmm. he's very hesitant and reluctant to make almost any decision at all any major decisions he is quick he is as an ability and the 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 forthrightness to try to protect frodo at every he's easy making those decisions that right oh i could easily give my life to make sure the ring gets here or make the decision so that you can go and he's willing to give his life in moments, but I don't think he's ever really ready to take on something as big as the the, the, the crown right. because of fear of what he'll do with it. Yes. You know, he is one of those characters, just like uh, many of the heroic characters are very aware of their frailties and what might happen if they give in to them. And that's a big point is, you know, the downfall comes when people forget about their frailties and just embrace the darkness. Mm-hmm. And one thing, have you ever seen the... Um, the oh uh the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings no I don't believe I have rotoscoped it's not it's not great and it it jams everything together in a way that's almost bewildering like uh I don't even know if they get to the I I think most of it is like Fellowship of the Ring and then they kind of jam some two towers in there and uh they jump none of it's really great yeah Yeah. I think I'm not even certain I don't even think that Bakshi gets to the actual um I guess he does get to the melting of the ring, but it's all kind of thrown in there. It's been years since I've seen it. But one of the things that is interesting is that John Hurt is the voice of Aragorn mm-hmm. in the, that production. And if you know anything of John Hurt, and you can kind of bring his call his voice to mind. It's funny because John Hurt has played all kinds of fantasy characters over the years, all kinds of characters in general. And he um, his voice is very distinctive, but yes. it's also the kind of voice that it – it enhances that sense of doubt, that sense of mm-hmm. this ranger character who is kind of a vagabond. And then that's the picture you get in the beginning. You know, uh, I think it's it's Frodo that says off the, the front when they're not sure if he's a good guy or a bad guy. And he says, well, you know, I feel like an agent of the enemy yeah. would feel would feel that he feel fairer or and, look, no, look or fairer, look fairer and, and feel fouler. Right. And it's the reverse with this guy. You yeah. Know? And. So the John Hurt casting, and of course he was younger then too because it was in the 70s, and it was animated over, mind you. But that kind of gave me, I think, a better sense of, yes, the Aragorn in the book is specifically supposed to be like that, just like the Hobbits. You're supposed to second-guess him. You're supposed to not have any kind of inkling that this guy will become the king. Right, right. And to be fair, I think that 
even though he's definitely in the heroic cast, I think Viggo Mortensen does a pretty good job of that, particularly in the first movie. Mm-hmm. I think he, you know, he's definitely more of the Fabio uh, uh, sort of. <laughs> not, he's a great actor, but you know what I mean. He's yes. definitely more in that like, like iconic um, kind of pretty boy right. fantasy character. And but what he does with it through that film, I think think is pretty uh it's pretty good particularly in the first one the fellowship of the ring uh so yes i agree with with what you're saying the other thing is the amount of backstory that's there for aragorn is good but different than the backstories that they give him yes in the movies because there's so much emphasis on the romance which isn't really any kind i mean the emphasis is not there in remotely the same way no in the book particularly not in the fellowship of the ring Right. No. And and you find, again, you find a lot of this material and things like that that come outside of this because you see, you know, you, you do understand uh, the life of, um, you know, uh, Luthien and um, oh, I'm forgetting his name now. Um, anyway, but their romance, which Aragorn and Arwen, the, their romance is supposed to mirror. And so you get some of that outside, but, but concerning pertaining to this particular story, you really don't get all of that. And I think that kind of leads into, you know, kind of the next segments, you know, because I think they do show you they're traveling out from Bree once, once they're foiled, you know, you see them traveling out from Bree and to Weathertop. Frodo gets stabbed at Weathertop, but in the movie who joins them and catches up with them is Arwen. And in the book it's, I believe it's Haldir Glorfindel. or Glorfindel. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and so you, you know, a little bit of rewriting there, but again, one of the things that I'll say is you, you get this sense where Frodo is fading very quickly and time moves very quickly in the movie where in the book you get more of a sense of his resistance to the evil because they're traveling for several days. They're not moving right from Weathertop on horseback as fast as they can to get to um, to get to Rivendell. You get more of a sense that they're still a ways away from Rivendell. And Frodo's just been stabbed with this poison knife. And he is he's turning into one of them. But you see his resistance and resilience, which, which really plays a big part in in these books and in the movie as well. But, you know, we're just, we're just told uh, about it uh, by Elrond instead of being shown it. And, and again, I think that's fine. You know, th- there's something to be said about this is a movie. We got to keep things moving along fairly quickly. But, but one of the things that the book really does in this, that that's missing from the movie is showing that, um, that hobbits really, particularly Frodo, the way that the ring was passed from from uh, Bilbo to Frodo, and because of the way Bilbo obtained it, there is this protection from the evil that is consuming all those who who get a hold of it. And so we're seeing that slowly um, in the books. We're seeing that slowly take over him instead of very fast and very quickly. And so I think you know when we're talking about what's missing from the movie, I think that's one of the things that's missing is this overarching man hobbits really are resistant and particularly frodo to this evil they say it a lot yeah you you, de- you the characters definitely keep re-emphasizing it you almost think wow they're re-emphasizing it a lot um but and of course that is something that it's almost a a fool's mission to complain about because now 
now we might get that as a mini series, you know. Mm-hmm. And even then, there's still a lot of hours to right. Lord of the Rings movies. I mean, it's not necessarily that everyone is clamoring that they should be longer. Um, but yeah, some of that was always going to be truncated. What I think is interesting is, you know, you, some of these characters do get sort of not deeply changed, but changed in a way that I think does take away some of the richness of what Tolkien was trying to do. One of those characters I want to talk about is uh, Saruman. Mm. Yeah. We haven't talked about it much. He focuses in. I mean, he, he his focus is greater across all the books, really, than 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 in the films. Mm-hmm. Um, I think realistically, he gets probably the most screen time in the first movie. He gets quite a bit in the other one too, I guess, in um, Two Towers as right. films. But uh, he's pretty prominent. But what are your thoughts on him as he's presented in the in the book? Because I think that there's something going on with Saruman. That's a little more interesting than what happens with him in the movie. Because in the movie, I mean, he's played beautifully by Christopher Lee. But he is very much, when we meet him and see him, he is sort of full on the bad guy. He is full on the heavy. And they're definitely using that Christopher Lee that once played Dracula and all these (laughs) other characters. Well, one of the things that we see in the book is we actually get a full on explanation of – of his descent, as it were, we see we, we get more of the fact that uh, you know uh, Saruman was really uh, jealous. Well, actually, I, okay, now I'm going to be a little bit confused because I have a whole lot of Tolkien background history and knowledge that might be coming out. So, if this is not in the book, Nathan, please go ahead and forgive me and correct me. <laughs> um, oh no, you don't no need no need for that uh, because I don't know if I'll be able to either. <laughs> But um, um, but one of the things that we see is you know uh, Saruman really started pulling away from humanity and delving into his books and studies, and we saw that you yeah. know he's part of he's part of the Astari. They were the group, the, I mean, almost the angelic beings who came down as wizards to advise humanity and and engage them in in the dealings with uh, Sauron. And all of those things. And, and Saruman was considered the head of the order. He was Saruman the White. The White Wizard is the Great Wizard, head of the order, the one who is to guide them in, in their questions. Um, there are the two Blue Wizards who, you know, barely get any mention. The, you know, they're briefly mentioned in The Hobbit where Gandalf says, and I don't even remember their names. Um, yeah, like how many wizards are there? And he like throws off a couple names. Right. You know, we get Radagast the Brown. But really who we're dealing with here is is Gandalf the Grey and Saruman the White. And what we see with Saruman is that um, while he was supposed to be the greatest of the order, we see that that greatness was built up in him as a pride and as an envy. And so the, the great leaders of the earth would go to Gandalf when they had questions or concerns, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't a, a, uh, go to Saruman. And that, that began to build up in him as bitterness. And we see how these, these perceived slights um, would would eventually change and corrupt him, and and how he he grew this arrogance where, well, you know, I'm greater than the mortals, and so I can take the ring and and I can wield it, and I have no problem with it. Um, so you see more of that twisting and that molding. You see that that calculation, and and Gandalf even admits that even even in his corruption, he is still powerful and wise. 
um, that, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't totally fallen from that station yet where, you know, it's not quite insanity at this point, you know, it's, it's this cool calculating. I've really thought this out and I've made a clear decision. He, he's not like the men who were tricked and seduced into the evil. He's made a clear calculated decision on what he's going to do. Um, and, and that's more of the Saruman we get from the books than we do from those movies. Yes, because in the films, he basically, you said, like, he does seem fully corrupted. Uh, even just the way they have Christopher Lee looking with the, like, mm, crazy the eyes. hawk nose and the crazy and the sunken in eyes yeah. and the fact that, the, you know, he, he's been hitting the Palantir pretty hard at that point or whatever. <laughs> but it's clear that he has been fully corrupted. I mean, even the, the way the shots are, you know, because he doesn't, there's not a lot of dialogue between he and Gandalf in the film. He kind of says, oh, yes, the hour is late, you know, and he sits down right. and it's all it's all shadowy and creepy. But one of the things to remember, particularly, I think, in when you're dealing with the book is that, as you pointed out, there's a greater emphasis on the fact that they're kind of like colleagues. Yeah, and this is not at all. You kind of wonder if this is not like Tolkien working out some of, uh, you know, some of his fellow uh <laughs> Uh, fellow professors, you know, guys fighting over grants or something right. on a on a campus somewhere, um, because that's kind of how it comes off. You know, yeah. it comes off very much like these scholars who have this sort of long-standing, slow, low-simmering feud that right. finally there's an opportunity for one to sort of one up the other, and then some of his decisions are made as much out of a fear about what Sauron will do to Middle Earth as it is a certain amount of contempt for Gandalf and what he's trying to say do yeah and what he's trying to convince saruman of but the other thing that is interesting is there is a greater deal of respect saruman has for gandalf through most of this early part even Mm -hmm. when he holds him prisoner you know he puts him on the top of the tower in the movie and he threatens to kill him and he's treated like a respected guest in the in the books books. you know he's he definitely is aware of this so i think those things are interesting because they humanize saruman quite a bit more than he was in the movie, he's not fully turned, and I think the 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 point of all that is that it's it's a more compelling picture of how one could be seduced to evil, right? Out of pragmatism, the idea here is it's pragmatic. If if Saruman wants Middle Earth to survive, then they're going to have to join, and if, if we are going to survive, we're going to have to join with Sauron, right? And maybe we won't be forever, but it has to be right now, right? That kind of thinking has, is what Tolkien witnessed in the real world sure. with wars and decisions for wars and the decisions that people made. And those sorts of things are, are as important as the, the ring weighing on their heart and, 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 and kind of encouraging toward evil. These other decisions that are just made out of fear or a rationalization of evil. Right, right. Well, and again, you know, we did talk about earlier on that, that, you know, this story was influenced by Tolkien's experiences and we can see, you know, some of his, his life coming through some of these things. I mean, the, uh, you know, the destruction of um, the trees around Orthanc and the things that were going on there, you know, Tolkien witnessed the, you know, 
the, the tearing down of countryside, more and more countryside to develop and expand the city and, and, you know, the industrialization in the 1920s and all of that stuff. And, you know, he, he did hold a very deep personal relationship to nature. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that he was, you know, a nature worshiper, but, but he loved nature and he loved being out in nature. He loved, I think he realized a certain sanctity to it. That's not to say any kind of sovereignty or supernatural nature, but a sanctity to it. And then once it's gone, it sort of is gone. Yes. And I think that's also what's interesting about Saruman is, you know, and there's even statements made later by some of the other characters that, that he should know better. Right. That he's sort of a steward of all of this. And when he well, probably one of the biggest signs of his eventual um slide into evil, you know, his fall, if you will, is that he does start destroying the things around Orthanc. Right. He starts destroying the very force to the point that people who used to know him, like Treebeard, right. don't even recognize him anymore because of the destruction that he's that he's wielding. Yes. Yeah, and and so I think I think you know that's that's an excellent point. We see, you know, we see life experiences, and again, we see and we can relate to that. I mean, I don't care if you're you know if you grew up in the city or if you grew up in the country, you see an appreciation for the beauty of what nature holds, and you know, I mean, it's it's the reason why people from the city are constantly going to the country to have their vacations. It's why they go camping. It's why they go traveling into nature so that they can experience, um, like you said, some of that sanctity that we see in nature um, that draws us closer to uh, to God, to a greater power. Um, you know, there, we, see, we see man's impressions and we see man's fingerprints in cities, but we see God's fingerprints in nature. And so there is something that spiritually connects us to God's creation when we, when we are in um, a venue like that, when we're in the outdoors. And so, you know, again, I, I think part of these things are what Tolkien is drawing on when he's, when he's writing these characters and he's writing these scenes. Um, one of the things that, that we see with uh, Gandalf and that we see all throughout these books is the idea that that redemption can still be at hand for anyone. You know, we see that when when um, Gandalf is talking to Frodo in in Moria and and they're in that dark and, you know, he's talking to him about uh, Bilbo not killing him and saying, you know, I think I think he has a a part to play in this still. Now, he doesn't necessarily say that Gollum's going to be redeemed in it, but he still has a part to play um, and that we don't know the outcomes of all. And so I think even in his dealings with Saruman, he's hoping for that redemption, that Saruman will turn from his evil ways and turn back to good and join them. And so there's always that, 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 you know, holdout for the hope that, that they can turn around, that the enemy does not completely have them yet. That's that's an interesting point too, because it, it seems like when characters talk about the fate of other characters, it's definitely in for the long view of it, you know. Mm-hmm. And that would be that would make sense for the elves with Gandalf and characters who, who seemingly quote unquote die several times and come in and come back, and you know, there's the whole going to the Grey Havens and all that. But what I'm getting at is that lots of times when the characters are talking, they aren't simply concerned on whether a person died or not. They want right. to know. Uh, how they fared and did they, you know, uh, 
they fall into shadow, what happened to them. Right. And specifically when there's concerns about Boromir, it's like, well, Boromir was almost taken, but he wasn't. But what does that mean? Because Boromir technically died. Right. And so the idea that Boromir escaped or was able to redeem himself, right? Uh, their concerns aren't necessarily about the physical body, but about what happened in the end in the full circle of things yes. uh, with the characters. And so I always thought that's interesting because, yeah, these characters want to know, you know, well, what happened and, and was, did Boromir fall? And Well, no, he, you know, uh, this happened. And in the end, he was able to, and it's like, okay, well, they have a different view. It's not a view that's singularly concerned with, did they live or did they die? Right. And uh, so that is interesting. The nature thing, uh, and I think a lot of that comes to from the world that, that Tolkien is trying to capture and to some degree that, that other authors uh, like Lewis were capturing was this idea of a of a Europe that existed in a different time, you know, yes. it was the, yeah. the Europe of not just of medieval of, of Arthur, not just the Europe of um, of folklore, and but also the Europe that was part of the Romantic poets yep. and things like that. We've been re- I've been reading a lot of like um, Wordsworth and Keats and stuff like that with the kids, and I'm sure that you know, which are really all about nature, you know, yeah. and. Uh, and and a, a kind of romantic view of nature, and I th- I'm sure that a lot of that was inspirational to Tolkien because his characters, particularly the hobbits, have that same sort of view that you'll find in the poems by the lake, what they called the lake poets, the guys that were in the lake district writing these poems, where you know they could just you know hit up some absinthe and then walk along the fields for a few hours right. and then <laughs> do whatever. But uh, you know, but you can see that tradition is pretty much well alive. And that's the kind of thing I don't think we get in a lot of fantasy books and stories that are written now is this much more classical approach that, you know, this guy is pulling from things like that, that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see in what would be a fantasy story. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. Um, so, you know, we, we find ourselves, in Rivendell, of course, this is where where Gandalf is uh, recapping, you know, the the events that have happened to him, and we get a lot more in Rivendell as well. We we come to meet uh, Bilbo again. Bilbo's brought back into the story, so we're seeing him again. We are introduced to Arwen, and then we're introduced to uh, who will become the the complete Fellowship of the Ring, and so. Um, you know, we see in Rivendell a a more weary Bilbo. Uh, he is he is aged uh, more clearly now. It describes him as being older, uh, and and Frodo almost doesn't recognize him because of how much he's seemed to have aged since he's left. And you know, granted, it's it's been you know twenty some years since he's seen him, but um, you know, he can tell that there's something that's been been removed from him that this this kind of perpetual youth that he's been in is no longer there um and so you know we get to see more of the glimpses of uh you know the the aging process taking place uh we see more of the story unfolding we get the backstory of the ring coming into place now um and and you know if you think about it we're you know halfway halfway through the book at this point, and this is where we're starting to see the whole picture unfold a little more clearly. Um, and I find it interesting that, you know, Tolkien really, he takes us along for the journey. 
and and he's not afraid to 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 bring it out and say we're going to get there when we get there. Um, but we also in this story we learn more about Aragorn's heritage. We learn more about who he is and and what he's destined to become. Uh, one of the things that I find interesting in this, as uh, opposed to the uh, the movies, is that uh, this is where um, Narsil is reformed and becomes the new blade, where it doesn't happen until the return of the king in the movies. So he actually gets his his new blade uh, in here before he leaves to go on his journey. And so we see more of the destiny unfolding and coming forth a little earlier than we get in the movies. And, um, you know, I I like this rest stop that they take here, uh, different than at Tom Bombadil's, because at Tom Bombadil, you felt felt total protection and total security in Tom Bombadil, where here you feel protected and safe, but everyone's even admitting that this isn't... We, we can't hold out forever here. You know, evil is coming and we, the elves are taking off and you humans are going to be here to fight the battle. So you got to figure out what you're going to do with the ring. Um, you know, and so we get a lot of those, a lot of those stories coming out. We see a lot more of the tension coming out between the elves and the dwarves and even the men, a lot more of the infighting coming in um, and the decisions got to be made what are we going to do and who's going to do it? And so I, you know, I really, I, I enjoyed being around here again. One of the things that I really think Tolkien does a masterful job at is, is taking you on the adventure. And so he's taking you on this journey and now we're here for a rest and you actually feel like you're resting with these characters. You feel like you're in a safe place with these characters ready to learn more about what's going on before you set off again. Yeah, and this this particular sequence where he goes to Rivendell, or when they all get to mm-hmm. Rivendell, and the way it's handled here, this is really more the crux of the first book mm-hmm. than anything else that happens. And it is, you know, there's a couple things that happen. First off, this and and they they do a decent job of it in the movie too, but it is very clear in the book that technically speaking, this is, should be end of the line for the hobbits. Right. As far as the hobbits know this is the end of the adventure. Like this is where they get off and they're just going to, you know, they exit the story and they go back to the Shire and they're pretty much fine with that. Yep. But that's not what happens. Like you said, it's not just a safety. They realize that the people they're entrusting this to don't really know what they're doing quite either. Mm-hmm. And it's been, it becomes very clear that this is a bigger, a bigger mission. So this is, this is where, you know, everyone makes kind of the big decisions This is where Frodo makes decisions and and again the book is sort of you know leaves it not doesn't leave it up in the air but it makes it clear that you know it isn't just all about frodo being brave the ring is prompting him to this as well you know that as much as it is i will take this there's a there you can see the beginnings of i don't want to leave it behind right and so there's that but now, story-wise, what we've gotten up until this point is we have been introduced. We know the Naz- we don't know them, but the Nazgul have played a pretty large role in the story yeah. at this point. The elves have played a decent role in the story. We've had a few representatives, the humans, in, in the form of Strider, and you know, there's a couple others, and of course the 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 whole interactions when they get to uh, Bree. But 
this moment in Rivendell is when you kind of get addressed, and that's what I want to talk about for a few minutes, is we start to see Tolkien's view of the lands of Middle-earth and how they, and the peoples of Middle-earth and how they all interact mm-hmm. and what their, what their dichotomies are. And yes. we've heard people, I mean, I, I think there's people who have tried to l- label some things on Tolkien that maybe are a little bit unfair about how he views certain people. But I think what the one thing that is clear when you're reading the book is Tolkien is introducing this idea that all of these people have different feelings about one another right that aren't going to be easily overcome by a conversation or two here there's long built up things and yet when it comes to a moment where they all have to deal with their own survival they are willing or are able to come together and do this yes this has already actually been he he sets the precedent for this at least as far as we the the readers are i'm not i'm i can only go i mean i can't only but essentially go in the order in which he wrote i'm not going back to the silmarillion or anything like right, that right right but that the end of the hobbit when they have the big the battle of the five armies which demonstrates there we have the they're pretty clearly the animosity that exists between the different factions mm-hmm. yeah. we see the humans and the the elves and the dwarves and 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 it's it's really brought out there, particularly with the dwarves, that the the animosity and the hurt feelings and the the rivalries go to a certain place. But at the end of the day, they all have to bound together to defeat this other force that comes into the picture. Yeah, and that happens in the Hobbit, and we see it happening again here. So what's happening in Rivendell there at the council meeting is a kind of microcosm of what happened at, at the end of the Hobbit. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of going back to that, that when these, these, it, it lets us know that these factions still exist. They haven't improved any uh, for the most part, but when you isolate and you have a few men and a few dwarves and a right. few <laughs> elves together, that those boundaries that are perceived sort of melt away a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, again, uh, not not deviating too far, but you know, you you do see and understand looking at the Silmarillion, you know, why these things exist. And the only reason why I say that is because, again, Tolkien had such such vast notes and in, in writings that that he was doing simultaneously with all of these things while he's trying to publish this stuff. That you do see that there are deep histories and reasons why these people mistrust each other and why why there are these factions that are set up and, you know, Aragorn seems to, to fairly freely uh, be one of the only ones that flows in and out of all communities um, except his own people, which is ironic that as a human, he's, he has, you know, more trouble uh, living with humans than he does any of the other races of middle earth. And the hobbits really at this point are still novelties because uh, humans, men and elves uh, and, and dwarves think that they are, um, they're myths to a certain extent. I mean, the dwarves know who the hobbits are because of who Bilbo was, but there are even still pockets of dwarves who think, you know, Oh, the, you know, this group is just a myth, you know, they're not real. And in fact, that's mentioned several times by different races was we never knew that, you know, they were, they still existed. We thought they had all been wiped out. Well, we three beard and the ants don't even know what they are. Yeah, even yeah. Though they've been around for so yeah, long. Yeah, they think they're you know they think they're tiny orcs. Um, yeah, you know, and so it's just it's fascinating that you know you just you see all of these divisions and lines. And I think I think again, Tolkien's writing from from reality. You know, I, I'm not gonna. 
sit here and, you know, imprint anything on him. But, you know, we, it doesn't take much to, in this world, see that there are divisions in this world. Um, and Tolkien does a good job at bringing divisions into his world that, that mirror um, the divisions that we see. You know, you're, you're different, and so you're, you're not as good as I am. Um, and, and, but again, the beauty of it is watching them walk through this journey and, and grow close together. And, and again, I think he's drawing on, on his war experiences. You know, there's nothing that will bond people together. Um, like, like a wartime experience, you know, as horrible as war is, it, it, it bands people together. I mean, you have band, you know, all of those things just draw these people together. And so you have, um, the the dwarves and the elves who are the sworn enemies of one another and and they're coming together as friends uh so that and and we'll get to this later but even by the end um Legolas is is bringing Gimli into you know the the most uh sacred parts of elven uh living to to give him those experiences and Gimli's doing the same for Legolas that they form this friendship and this bond through this journey where they started off uh, at each other's throats almost. And it's based off of a lot more than how many people did you kill? Right. <laughs> Which is sort of their, <laughs> their primary connection point in the movies. Um, yeah. And so to kind of wind up some of this, I think we're just really getting the parts that become the adventure parts, but what did you think, what are your thoughts, Nathan, on the more adventurous parts of the Fellowship of the Ring. There's really two parts I can think of that probably bear some discussion, which is one, of course, is the chapter that's called the Bridge of Khazad-dûm. Right. Because there's a lot of stuff that happens in that chapter, and it actually happens so quickly that it's easy to miss a couple of things. I do think this is a part that Peter Jackson handled pretty well in the movie because he did was able to kind of make it this yeah. big, long kind of roller coaster action sequence. And there's a couple monsters that you lose complete track of when you're reading the book, the watcher in the lake or the, the, right. the thing that comes out. And the uh then you got the Balrog and you've got the orcs come out mm-hmm. and all of these things are happening in such and there's a and there's trolls are there. And these things are happening in such succession that it, it's uh Tolkien kind of races through it a little bit. You know, it's kind of get through it, get to the other side. And it's fun, and I think it's well-written. This is an area where I think that if you're someone who enjoys expanded action sequences and, and kind of getting a geography of what's happening, um, and people who grew up on like the old Harryhausen movies, that there's something that the movie maybe uh, embellishes a little bit to good effect. Yeah, and, and I would agree with that. I, I agree. I think Tolkien did a good job with uh, Moria and particularly Casa Dune and the uh... – you know, those scenes and racing through bringing in uh, the Balrog, which we had not seen before. Um, I, I thought that that was very well done. I mean, it, when I think about the story and I think about the movie and those scenes and those shots that were done, I, I can't think of a better way to do it. Um, to me, that was the embodiment of that section. And so I think it works very well. And I think you know, looking at that, that race of, of going from one thing to the other, I think it does invoke the sense of urgency and, and the need to get out of here. Now we are under attack. We've been discovered. If we don't get out of here now, we're going to be surrounded and we're going to die. 
and our mission's going to be over. And so you get that sense of run, 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 go, go, go. You need to get out of this mountain now. And so I think that both the movie and Tolkien handle that very well. Now, I think Tolkien handles it the way he does um, more out of a sense that I don't think he was as interested in the battles. Um, and we see that, you know, based on what we see with the two yeah. towers and reading the book, and we'll get to that Those later. Those are the but... moments where the story starts to resemble a kind of straightforward fairy tale again. Yes. The fact that he just kind of tells you, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. And this is what, what, what goes on. It's not it's not poorly done at all. Right. It is a little less poetic than some of his other pieces. But, I mean, right. it's still fast-paced. I still think it sets it. It also, people, there wasn't it wasn't like a lot of this was happening, you know, right. as far as fantasy novels and stuff goes. So he was competing against a whole lot at that time. I mean, right. again, I mentioned like, you know, some of the precursors of this, like James Fenmore Cooper, is it better than that? Well, it's a lot, lot better than that. Right. <laughs> um, right. But, and I, you know, I think about, I'm, I'm going through the, uh, the legend of Dritz books. I'm, I'm in the Homeland series, Ari Salvatore. Um, you know, I think, I think some of the stuff that Ari Salvatore does with his battle scenes, um, are are better than what Tolkien did with his, but again, I don't think that we would have got where the things that Al- well, Ari Salvatore is largely he 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 does that same thing where he's kind of like he builds the historian aspect into the stories. You mm-hmm. know, there's always people who are sort of laying this as history. He's in it more for the battles. Right. He's more interested in the logistics of actual battles and what they look like. And I just don't think Tolkien was. No, and I, yeah. Um, and I would agree with that. And I think a lot of his history and experience is what dictated that. You know, he lived through – he actually lived through wars and battles. He survived, you know, But he these captures things. the sense of it well. Yes, you know? yes. The, the feeling and the evocative nature of it is, is captured well. Um, I really like how it uh, – I do think he gets a mythic sense that doesn't always get cut through sometimes when they want to make this big action scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that scenes like that that are hard to do were as we get to the very end as they're coming out of the uh, – is the Argonauts? Yes. When they, they come out and they're making their way and then they have that, that – moment big on, showdown on yeah yeah yes exactly and Penn, when they have the big battle not the big battle but this is where everything falls apart right this is yes. where boromir has his moment of weakness and that allows everything to kind of go down where um the, the fellowship gets splintered essentially right here and but that scene it's hard to beat in the books where uh basically boromir has his redemption moment it's yeah. not. It's his redemption moment. It's also his moment when you see exactly what kind of fighter he really is, right? And not just like how he fights, but the tenacity with which he fights and the heart with which he fights, yeah. And all these things that like. And, and and again, I think it's fair to say that Boromir is a lot less um, kind of villainized in the books until yeah. he until he makes the decision. It's not that it's not set up. But it's clear – I think the other – maybe it's more so that in the book, it's mm-hmm. clear that everybody kind of wants the ring if they can get right. a hold of it. And it isn't yeah. just simply singled out. The movie with its knowledge that Boromir will be the one to take the ring seems to kind of cast him in a different light. Yes. Um, I think Sean Bean plays him very well. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's definitely – he has that shifty – you know, 
the camera is always cutting over to Boromir eyeing up the ring. Right. As whereas I think it's more in the book, correct me if I'm wrong, it's presented a little bit more as Boromir very pragmatically wants the ring right. for a good use. Right. And it's it's that way in the movie too. And they do give him a lot of shots of how he, you know, he's building relationship with Hobbits. He wants Aragorn to be on his side. He wants them all to get where they're going. He just has a different idea of how it might happen. Yes. But I do think that when Boromir finally kind of cracks and tries to take the ring, it does feel a little more tragic and a little less um, inevitable. Right. You know, the movie makes it very inevitable. And yeah. I think as a result, his mo- moment where he stands up and he blows the horn of Gondor, which is far more resonant in the in the book. Right. <laughs> and in the movie, I mean, I think in the movie they're trying to balance a certain sense of realism right. with it. Um what did you think about how that scene was handled in the film? Because to me, I, much as I love the Bridge of Cause of Doom sequence in the film, and I'll say my favorite part of the film was probably the opening in the Shire, mm-hmm. just seeing Hobbiton and seeing the interactions and seeing Gandalf mm-hmm. and seeing all that stuff sort of for the first time. I thought the way they handled that scene involving Boromir and all the characters and the splintering of the Fellowship, I thought that was some really good filmmaking yeah. that was hard to do because it's not necessarily the biggest most flashiest moment in the story at least mm-hmm. up to that point right you know yet they've got to end it here right this is where they've kind of got right. to have the fellowship break apart and so i thought that what they did I've, i know i've weirdly enough mentioned like last mohicans twice now already i'm about to do it again the film version that michael mann did did you ever see his version of the last mohicans with daniel day lewis yep yep uh, from 91. I thought Love that, that was, movie. Love that movie. Yeah, a fantastic movie made from a book that doesn't really amount to a whole lot. Right. <laughs> and uh, I keep taking digs at Cooper. I apologize. But, like, that movie, though, has some of the most, like, kinetic and visceral and violent, but also kind of beautiful action scenes I can think of. Yes. It's almost all action, and yet it has a movement, a progression. It keeps going forward. You're really into it. Mm-hmm. And you, and, and it, but it, but it's not. It never gets over the top. It doesn't get too right. over the top anyway. It has a sense of practical – you're like, oh, this feels like there's real blood and there's real grime and grit that's happening here. Yeah. And yet it does have some beautiful compositions. It has that feeling you're looking at almost like a painted storybook illustration. And I, I don't think there's a lot of movies that can do it as well as, say, Last Mohicans mm-hmm. did it. But when I watched the, the, the um, Peter Jackson movie for the very first time – Last of the Mohicans was what came to mind in that final mm-hmm. scene when they're coming down, when you see the camera pan over and the orcs are running down the path and yeah. Boromir has the horn and he's moving yeah. backwards. Everything that's done there, it stays in a very realistic light. Later on in these series, you can't distinguish one CGI army from another in some <laughs> cases. And I, I mean, I'm not, but there's a lot of CGI sure. in this first movie, sure. but they kind of pull back and everything is very gritty. Everything's very rugged. The battles with the orcs feel like something you'd see in a Peter Jackson, like splatter movie, you know, right. like, it suddenly has a grittiness and a realness to it that's not exactly there in some of the other scenes in the movie. And yeah. so I think it was about – it's very much more mythic in the book. But I do like – I think it was it was as close to you get to like masterful is what it, Jackson did over any of the movies he does I think right there. Like that that sequence is to me – as pivotal or as powerful as some of the bigger scenes that you get in some of the later movies. And I think, I think part of what makes it so powerful is you have these, you have these two moments that bookend this. You have the moment right before the battle starts where Aragorn confronts uh, Frodo, where he does not do that in the book. He confronts yeah, that's right. Frodo. He does not, no, they, they kind of go off and 
And I think that works. I, I really think that works. And I like that scene because it's a scene where we, where we get, okay, Aragorn is not like the other men. He's not going to take the ring. He's, he's, while, while he might be internally tempted, he knows that he is not going to grab it from him. He's not going to do that. He, he would have been the one to have taken him the whole way without, without grabbing it from him. He would have been like Samwise, except a, you know the, the, the bigger warrior version of Samwise. Um, and so you have that moment, which I think works very well, where he's kind of he's giving his blessing almost that, okay, I understand you're going to need to go and you're going to need to go on your own. And I think that's a powerful moment that works for those two, which is also bookend by the end of it, where we see uh, the death of Boromir and that redemption coming in. And so, you know, we see that Boromir fought to save those two hobbits that he was going to be in charge of protecting. And he, he fought with his life to save them and to make sure that he did everything he could to bring them to safety. And so I really, I thought the battle was well done. I, I didn't think it was anywhere near over the top. I enjoyed the battle in two towers, but it was way over the top. It was way over the top and unrealistic. I enjoyed it because there were parts of that that I thought were fun and cool and actiony. You know, yeah, and I'm not I'm not knocking those others. I just right. thought that this one was a hard one to handle because it is so mythic and big in the right. book. Not big, but like it has that mythic quality of yes. blowing the horn with tons of arrows. Yes. I mean, you can't just quite capture some of those images unless you're like Akira Kurosawa, right? Right. And so, although you know. Jackson does go for it. He goes for those big, like David Lean and Kurosawa esque shots and a lot of the other pieces. But I, you know, what you said is true that the bookends and the way they handle it in the movie is effective because you don't have that moment where Aragorn lets Frodo go. Mm-hmm. But you kind of need it because of the nature of the movies. They're not coming out for a while. Right. And here, you know, you've got Frodo and them going on. And so. To give some sense of closure, you kind of have to do that. But what it also does is it does make Aragorn um, – it's like his first real like decision, right? Yes. Like it's an actual yeah. active decision to say you have to take this without me yes. and that you cannot go. And he knows when he looks at it and he sees it, he knows before he even walks up that that's what he has to do. Yeah. And it's the gears part where that decision – comes very shortly after um, and a lot of movies or stories you have the moment where the person is dying the classic battlefield death where someone asks somebody to promise something to them that they have no intention of carrying through right i think what's impressive is like when boromir dies and he asks he's talking to uh aragorn when aragorn tells him the things he tells him which essentially is like no you know i you know if i can i will save the white city yeah. If I can do these things, I will do them. I don't, you know, it doesn't come off as him giving him, feeding him junk so he can pass on in peace. Right. He's basically his pivotal moment, which happened, to, it began with Frodo, the decision, okay, if I'm not going with Frodo, what am I going to do? Right. Because I'm back here, you know, and I'm going to have to fight with the men and I'm going to have to protect the white city. The, the steps towards being the king happen right there on the ground with Boromir when he dies. Yes. And, you know, that I thought is kind of powerful, just the way they do it in the film, because this next step is, okay, we have to go after the hobbits. And then the visually it's interesting because they throw in these little things that you have to kind of watch them 
to catch, but are emphasized kind of in the book, which is, you know, you've got that Viking death sort of for Boromir where they right. put him in the boat. And as they're doing that, as Gimli and Legolas are wondering, well, what do we do next? The shot that comes after it is Aragorn explaining to him that, no, we're not going to abandon the hobbits to death. We, you know, right. we have these big things. Yes, I'm set on the, the, the track to King now, in a sense. I'm going to protect the White City. Before I protect the White City, we're going to go get the hobbits. Right. And as he's saying he's going to do that, he is attaching to his arms the the gauntlets, the gauntlets of Gondor. that belong to Boromir. Yeah. He's now taking them from Boromir. He's putting them – and I think you can kind of miss that. You realize that later he's wearing these things. They – he, you know, they are the, the 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 same ones that Boromir was wearing. He's now yeah. attaching them, and he's so a lot of stuff like that. I thought the ending of that movie was handled very beautifully from that perspective, yeah. and in ways that feel less cliffhangery than what happened in the book. Because again, yeah. I think a lot of this stuff, the stuff that it's interesting, because I like the movies and the books for completely different reasons, right. and I was reminded of that. I think the stuff that Tolkien excelled at. Jackson let it be and worked and, and he used that and used it for what it was. And then his things that he excels at a little bit, some of the action scenes mm-hmm. and they, making some of this big full bodied adventure stuff uh, that Tolkien wasn't as interested in. You get two different versions. So yes. you get the big blockbuster movie, but it's a it's a pretty great blockbuster movie. It is. It I is think. a good I, I believe it's a good adaptation of of the spirit of the book. I believe it's yes. a good adaptation of the spirit of the book. It lets it it perfectly brings in these characters. I mean, I really I can't think of anyone who I would bring in to play any of these characters. You know, I mean, the, these, and we didn't talk Galadriel a great bit. She is a little bit different. That's true. Book and movie, yeah. but I do like I like Kate Blanchett. I do think that. Everything they did with her was a little overly ethereal. There's a lot yeah. of special effects used for her in the movie. I would have liked to see her be less exposition-y, I think. Yep. Uh, in fact, she probably gets a little bit – a little more humanization in the Hobbit movies, which I'm not a huge fan of. But I think they that she probably has scenes that aren't as you know lady exposition right. in those movies where she's given a few moments to have tender moments with Gandalf and things like that, that don't really happen as much in these movies because she's always saying some pretentiously right. important thing. Her well, biggest moment is probably when she, she meets with, with Frodo in this, yes, in, in the fellowship where, yeah, he's looking into the mirror and actually if I can rewind a little bit, because uh, that, I mean, I guess that's another thing to talk about is, is the book, the book develops Boromir's character a little bit more in this scene in uh, in Lothlorien. You know, you see more of his struggle, and, and Aragorn even alludes to that. You know, Boromir just kind of talks about his sense of unease, and he doesn't know what to do here because um, he just he feels that something's foul. And Aragorn's quick to just say, "If there's something foul, it's what you're bringing with you." Um. And I, and I think that's that's an interesting concept of, you know, talking about the, the evil that we bring with us, the internal evil and the internal struggle, not necessarily the external forces. You know, the bewarement of, you know, we read an awful lot about how Saruman and Sauron corrupt individuals externally, but there's there's clearly something internal that's also already corrupted in order for that to fully come out and take place. Um, and so I, I, I love that scene and that picture that's painted in there and, and how, you know, we see Galadriel not, um, 
not being used as a genie or a fortune teller, tell me my destiny. It's I'm going to present you with information and it's up to you to decide what to do with it. So I'm not going to tell you what you're going to do. I'm not going to tell you turn right, turn left, go back, go forward. I'm going to show you and and explain to you, here's what's before you and you make that decision. Yeah. And if I have any complaint maybe about Lord of the Rings as a book, it is that maybe Tolkien has just a few too many of those characters that seem to exist to sort of stand outside the story a little mm-hmm. bit, you know, that, that they're there to be the the point that is kind of also, if you're very keeping with like a Greek mythological sort of view where you come, you meet this character on your road to here and then you do this kind of thing. And there's a lot of those characters that I don't, I'm not sure that some of the elves ever really become very fully formed as characters. Yes. Galadriel's probably definitely falls into that. I do think that some of the casting of Kate Blanchett, the casting of Hugo Weaving, things like that certainly helped those characters mm-hmm. in the way they were presented in the film. But um, so a question for you, Nathan, what, how do you feel overall? I mean, I think that I, for me, the Lord of the Rings is a book that they're very hard to differentiate as anything more than, I know we talk about, talk about them separate things, yeah. but I think it's hard to differentiate them as separate books. Um, yeah. I love the beginning of this journey. I love how it develops, but the way Tolkien has written it all, it really does feel like it's one big story. So it's hard for me to say, oh, Fellowship is better than Two Towers, is better than Return of the King yeah. because of how they all intersect. But I feel differently about the movies. I feel, for me, there are clear delineations yes. of what I like more or better. Yeah, and I think part of that probably boiled down to when when you read the book, when you read The Two Towers – um, and, and we read all the extensive battle that, that went on in Two Towers, the movie. It really wasn't like that in the book. I mean, really, the journey continued just like the book did with, with moments of action and adventure that were filed throughout there. Well, it's the two towers. It's about those intersection between the, the the alliance between those two forces. It's not the Battle of Helm's Deep. Right. The Battle of Helm's right. Deep is a chapter, just like the Bridges of Khazad-dûm are a chapter. Right. And so I think I think that's one of the reasons why it's easier to to pick out a favorite movie as opposed to a favorite book, because the book starts with, uh, I mean, the book really starts with the Hobbit and the events that happen there in the obtaining of the Ring, um, but. But if you're not going to start there, it starts with fellowship and it ends with return of the king. There, there is no, oh, you know, fellowship was my favorite because of X, Y, Z. Well, I, I have favorite moments that I, that I love going back right. to and I anticipate in each and every book. Um, so, yeah. And the difference with the books, too, I think something that happens in the films as a result of the production values, as a, as a result of the performances. And, the, you know, I think it's true a lot of times of these big series that you get to know the characters the most in the first one, right? Like that's when they get to, we get to see Gandalf, we get to see Frodo in moments where they're interacting with each other and we can just kind of enjoy their company. They're not racing from one big thing to the mm-hmm. next. Right. In the books, the level of character development remains pretty strong all throughout. Right. And the and new characters that we meet in the second and third books right. become very um, real and tangible to us 
down to King Theoden and things yep. like that. I won't get into that because it's a separate story. Yeah. But those characters become kind of iconic and 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 rich just as soon as you meet them. Whereas I think in the movies, for me, um, I'm curious to, to say. I mean, I, we'll probably have to go through all of them, but I. I am willing to go out and say that this one is probably my favorite of the three films. Yeah, um, I, I would agree. I would agree with that. And I think it's because of the sense of everything comes together the most. You see the interactions of the characters the most. It's the one with the least amount of just sustained action, I think. Mm-hmm. It has that quest feeling a lot more than the others do. Mm-hmm. You're cutting between so many storylines. Also, they're all together for the most right. part. I right. think that's the big one is they're all together. Whereas in Two Towers and Return of the King, oh man, particularly when you get to these special editions, I don't know, most people who are fans have probably seen theatrical edition, extended edition, whatever other yeah. Peter Jackson's grocery list edition, <laughs> what other versions are out there. I mean, to me, I actually do think that the extended editions, at least of this series, I've not watched. Honestly, I was so, um, I was kind of done with the Hobbit trilogy after I saw the theatrical versions. So, so I've never actually seen extended versions. Have you? Uh, I know that's kind yeah, of a divergent. Seen but. them, own them. You know, I mean, I mean, you know me, Nathan. We're you know, you and I are kindred spirits in that regard. We we are movie buffs. Now, to the are they degree. worth seeing? Because I I think I would recommend hands down the extended versions of the Lord of the Rings to anyone who, if they've not seen the movies, yeah, I think the extended versions are better. They flow better. Uh, when you get to some things like Return of the King, there is a lot of stuff in there. But I do think, particularly Fellowship of the Ring, I just think it's a stronger movie, even in the way it's edited at the very beginning. Yeah. Because that prologue that we discussed in detail that's in the book that's such a great jumping off point yep. is very is barely there in right. the film, in the theatrical film. But in the in the in the extended version, you get the background of the hobbits. You get the feeling of Bilbo a little isolated from everybody. Yes. So I just think that they're better overall. But are, are the Hobbit ones worth seeing? Because I mean, I would say the first one is, and, and in my opinion, um, the the first Hobbit movie. It's interesting. Joy and I went through. We watched uh, the Lord of the Rings. We watched the extended ones, and we're and we were disappointed with the Hobbit movies. Um, and but I said, you know what? Let's let's go back and and we'll, we'll rewatch. And so we we put in the Hobbit, watched that, and I I was about to put in the second one. I was like, you know what? Let's not like the first Hobbit movie was such, in my opinion, a great adaptation of of the events that it encompassed that when I go back and I watch the second one, I just get more and more disappointed with how those movies were done. And so I I thought that even the extended edition, the things that were added in there and, and there there are things that are. Um, a lot more silly and fun, but I think it adds to the world um, there and not in a bad way. So I think it does a good job of building on and adding. The version of The things. Hobbit I want is not the extended version, it's the truncated version. Yeah, I want exactly. to see it all in one movie. Exactly. Give me that and I'll, <laughs> I'll pay money for it. But. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Where, where I feel like I can sit down and I can watch all three of The Lord of the Rings and while I have my favorite, and I would yeah. agree with you, in The Fellowship – I can watch all three and I can enjoy all three. The Hobbit, I, I get to the first part and I go to put in the second one and I'm like, oh, I I just don't want to be disappointed like I know I'm going to be. 
Yeah, they're just – I mean, I really don't think they're that good. And I'm a big Peter Jackson fan. I actually loved his version of King Kong. Uh, mm-hmm. I would recommend if people can see um, They Shall Not Grow Old where he took World War One footage and re yeah. um, revamped it. That's really good. But I think that honestly uh, it's just not um, – they're, they're just – they don't have that spark that these had. And part of that is because you're taking a story that was much more simple right. and expanding it. We're here. You're taking something that's very. So, again, my bottom line is this book. The book is fantastic. Yeah. The whole trilogy is fantastic. And if you if you don't like you didn't enjoy the movies, I would say still go for the book. It's a very, very different yes. experience. Um But the movies are good, too. And right. I mean, I honestly, the Fellowship of the Ring is probably one of my favorite modern Meaning, you know, it, one of the best fantasy adventure movies that's been made maybe in the past 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would, I mean, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, yeah, there's just, there's, I remember, you know, so very clearly when they had announced that this was going to be made. And I remember following, um, I, you know, I was just entering my freshman year of college when more and more information was coming out about it, it would have been, you know, September of 2001 uh, that I would have entered college. And, you know, this was released December of 2001. And I was just so, uh, so excited for it. And I, I started reading more about it and getting more into it. I went back and reread the, the books before going to see it. And I remember sitting in the theater just being like, wow, my mouth was just open looking at the scale of what they had done to take a book like this and, and, and bring it to life in the movie. And again, it's not word for word. It does have issues, but let's face it. Anytime you take something that you just grew up with and you love, and you try to translate that into another medium or put another spin or take on it, there's, there's always going to be things that you're like, Oh, why didn't you do this or this? So yes, I have personal preferences of things that I would have done, but this is just a fantastic adaptation of of the essence of the story and the characters brought to life on screen. And I'll say this too. I think going back and rereading very freshly The Fellowship of the Ring, I'm actually surprised at how much of the language does make it into yes. the movie. Yes. Um, because there are whole lines that are lifted. The, the bread line I mentioned earlier. Yep. There's a lot. The, the whole dialogue. Granted, they move it from being earlier in the story to right. later. And they move it to Moria. But the discussion about Gollum and the right. ring and that sort of thing. that they, they keep those pretty much intact. And whole bits of the dialogue are directly from that. So, I mean, clearly it helped to have people who were really in love with this source material and wanted to do it the right way and do something that would, that honored Tolkien yeah. in the, in their way. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't think you could have really, the other thing too, you mentioned about when it came out in 2001, the thing that I think most people don't have an appreciation for is that fantasy was not a movie genre anymore. Right. Really in, in 2000 and 2001, Fantasy was not something that was being made, not this high no. fantasy that we think of now that like every fifth movie and everyone's so sick and tired of it. If you saw a dragon in a movie, I mean, there were what, maybe three dragons in the movies since 1981, right. you know, um, like honestly, and I, I don't even say that flippantly because like 
you can count almost on one hand the number of fantasy, like legit fantasy movies that existed prior to Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And one of them the year before really demonstrated why we needed this was, was the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Oh yeah. I, uh, but you taught you, you mentioned that, like, I mean, it was like Marlon Wayans played an elf. Okay. Right. Think about that. Not Marlon. Uh, was it, it was, yeah. No, I think well, you're Marlon right. Wayans. I think it was Marlon Wayans. And, um, Thor Birch was in it. Jeremy Irons with like, with yeah. like blue lipstick. Was it Justin, not, uh, what's his name? Jimmy Olsen from the new adventures of Superman. Yeah, yeah, it was not a it, and and the I remember specifically that the dwarf to make him look different, they had to shoot him from obvious yeah. angles, or he'd be like kind of almost on his knees. It was just really, really badly done. The dragons looked awful, and yet I remember going out opening night with the with friends in college to see that movie because that was it. Like right. that was <laughs> this is what was we've the got. First, I remember us sitting there and thinking, this is the first fantasy movie we've had since. Dragonheart, yeah, in 1998, yeah, that kind of fantasy we're talking about now. There, and you'd have little things pop up on television. There was a short, very short-lived Heath Ledger movie or TV show called Roar that mm-hmm. came out that was like a fantasy thing. There were a couple others. It was not much at all. Right. And then, so for Lord of the Rings, I mean, it, it changed the landscape so so immensely that we're all sick and tired of fantasy. <laughs> Some of us are <laughs> sick and tired of fantasy now. Not sick and tired of it, but it's second, right. second, just like just. The way that the, the the book of Fellowship of the Ring came in and sort of was a game changer. The movie was in a similar way too. Yeah. Um, and I just don't think people have a great uh, an exact appreciation. And even the movies we mentioned, like again, Dragon Dungeons Dragons was a train wreck. Right. Um. I mean, it's it's a so bad you may want to see it as a mystery science theater level kind of a movie. Yeah. Dragonheart's a lot of fun, but it's not really a fantasy movie. It's basically Braveheart with a dragon right. made like toned down for kids, kind of. I don't even joke about that. That's yeah. kind of what it was. So, I mean, they they really are special movies. I, I think that there were definitely people even at the time that were kind of down on them. I do think they tried to bring some of that old Hollywood grandeur back that you would see in a Lawrence of Arabia or mm-hmm. a, something like that. You know, the scope. And the level on which the movie was being made was just so big. To be fair, I should also mention Harry Potter started getting its movie adaptations right. the same year, a yep. little bit beforehand. So the one-two punch of Sorcerer's Stone and this movie were really what brought fantasy back to people. And then within a few years, it was crawling all over the place. Yeah, yeah. No, I I agree. I agree. And you know, for me too, like you know what you were what you were bringing out about being uh, annoyed with fantasy. I think I think part of the problem is some of the fantasy is just getting itself into a comfortable rhythm, and it's not it's not a very good one. It's you know you've got um, you've got Game of Thrones that came out, and you know they particularly earlier on in the seasons they were throwing. Um, a lot more things in there, you know, a lot more nudity and sex and things like that in there. That was like, I, yeah, I, I don't want to see this. I don't need to see this. And you've got the Witcher that just came out and it decided it was going to go a Game of Thrones kind of way. And it's it's just kind of one of those things where. Well, and then the storytelling, too. And the right. one thing I say for Game of Thrones, at least with Game of Thrones, that the storytelling and what they're doing was a little bit different than your typical high fantasy. Okay. Right. So it's a, trying to be court intrigue and there's a little bit more of, uh, of that kind of thing going on. And they're trying to give it some kind of historical, um, 
basis. So it just doesn't feel like another Lord of the Rings. And that's sure. the tricky part, though. Uh, whereas The Witcher, I kind of feel like it does start. It's hard to distinguish itself from how what other five, ten fantasy things I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that that's the trick these days is how do you make something that distinguishes itself or if it's not going to distinguish itself? Is it just fun? You know, well, can you have fun with it? And I think that's the thing. I mean, I remember I went through the Shannara Chronicles a few years ago, season one and two. That and, was exactly one of the series. Legend of the Seeker was another one I was going to mention. Yeah. Where it's sort of like this isn't good. This is this is a little bit better than Hercules Legendary Journeys. Right. But like this, uh, um, but they were fun to watch. They were, Shannara Chronicles I watched with the kids. I kind of wish they had continued that to be perfectly honest. And, and I agree with that. I, I wish that they had continued on as well. I was, I enjoyed the first two seasons. Um, the Witcher though, I, to me, I just, I felt like it was, it was a waste. I mean, they, they did maybe two episodes in that whole series that I was like, man, this is, I saw the potential of how it could be a fun series, but again, it was, it was two episodes and I'm like, I just, I, I wasted nine hours of my life for two good episodes. Um, you know, and so I feel like if, if you can grab a hold of good story, like I would like to see a good story, fantasy story written in the vein that Mandalorian was done in. I mean, you know, Mandalorian is a different medium, obviously it's sci-fi, but but those were individual stories wrapped up in an overall story that was fun to watch, and it brought me on an adventure that that I can go back and watch over and over again. I want somebody to to come up with a series like that for fantasy that I can get into like that. Something that I, every episode I'm watching, I'm like, man, this is just as good, if not better, than the first episode I saw in the first episode I saw grabbed me and pulled me in right from the beginning. And that does exist in writing. You know, there are books right. out there that, that, but I agree. Um, I do have a recommendation for you. I don't know if you've ever read it. Um, have you ever read the name of the wind by Patrick Rothfuss? It sounds familiar, but I don't know if I've read it or not. I, I think I might even have a copy I could drop off for you. That I would very much recommend that because it's sort of in between the R.A. Salvatore that you're talking about mm-hmm. and also Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, playing in a fantasy world that's very similar. He's definitely a Dungeons & Dragons nut. You can sense it. But he has that same encompassing sense of I want to build this really big, vast world. And he does a lot with the idea that music is a part of how these characters do this. So oh, the wow. minstrels and magicians are not that far apart in this world. So the mm. kind of things I think you were probably gravitating towards in The Witcher yep. that you liked would be very prevalent in this. And there's a whole series of this uh, this um, that Patrick Rothfuss did. So I will get that book to you. because I And I recommend it to anyone who's listening. The, it's called The Name of the Wind. It's a little bit older now. But um, it came out maybe 2008. So mm-hmm. somewhere in there i think the whole series is finished now it's really good stuff nice it's it is on the high fantasy vein it's a big dense book but it's that kind of good big dense book where the once you start reading it, you realize oh this means i get a lot more of this yes and i yes. get to go on this journey it's definitely a guy who enjoys the journey so and you nice. get the benefit it's so frustrating waiting for him to finish the books right so i think you have the benefit now of like i mean he was getting hate mail and and <laughs> struggling with his own apathy to get the book finished. And it was like, well, you guys have to wait longer now. Right. <laughs> so, uh, but name of the wind, 
highly recommend it. And of course, recommend rereading. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to see what people are going to, what people's thoughts are when they go back and reread these, because for yeah. me, there was a lot in there that we didn't get to touch upon that is interesting. Uh, but almost all of my experiences reading it were just all the thoughts and the new, the fresh things had nothing to do with the fantasy. It was right. all in how he was laying out this story that has more touch points with a with a war drama or something like that, mm-hmm. or a wartime, I should say, yeah. wartime drama. Yeah, uh, that were really fascinating. That had anything to do with the the, the fantasy characters. And stuff. Yes, yeah, no, and I agree. I mean, this is again, you know, when you look at what Tolkien had set out to do, his goal was not to make an allegory. And in fact, when you read some of the things that he says about C.S. Lewis, who is you know, <laughs> one of his best friends. And his writings, it's not very complimentary. Believe he used the term bully pulpit. Yeah. <laughs> not not very complimentary at all of Lewis's uh, fantasy works and writings. Um, but, you know, you do, you do see this idea of, of Tolkien's personality coming out. He seemed to be, um, you know, a very, a very genuine uh, person in, in, you know, not to say that Lewis wasn't or anything like that, but just, he was very sincere in his writings. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to tell a story that predated, um, religions. It predated a recognizable, um, world that we see today. It was a world that was entrenched in, in, myth and a world that was entrenched in the things that that we consider fantasy today but at that time was a reality and i think he does a good job at telling that story telling that history um as much as it's fantasy and i know it's fantasy i don't actually believe it's a history but i think he did a good job at telling that story a history of the world that was a myth um, and I think that's probably a better way to put it. He told a myth about the history of Middle Earth, Europe, uh, that that has just – it's endured. I mean you think about when it was published and written and coming down the line. And, and you know, you mentioned and, and cracked a joke about Twilight and bestseller and all that stuff. One of the things that I will say, uh, you know, that Twilight has not sustained is – um, in terms of you know who are still going out and buying those books now, where Lord of the Rings find is out still... this month, man, <laughs> when the new one drops because if if oh, coronavirus right. and murder hornets and an oh, apparent snowstorm right. this weekend aren't enough, the fifth sign of the apocalypse will be on the way later this month. Oh, that's right. I forgot. I did. Joy did say something about that to me that was coming out. Um, uh, so we yeah we'll find out, but. Um, we you won't, know, you yeah, and I, yeah, we won't, won't. yeah, <laughs> no, that's true. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but the story endures. And I think part of the reason why the story endures is it, it does capture the essence of good and evil. Your, you have a clear distinction of virtue. You have a clear quest that is there and before you and you are trying to vanquish evil. There, there's no moral ambiguity. Now, different characters might waver in their morality, but but good is still always good. Um, and so, even the characters that are wavering in their morality, and even the characters that are that were once good characters and they were corrupted again, like like you have Boromir, 
Boromir comes to a redemption story where he's brought back in. Um, and not all characters do that. Not all arcs have that. And I, and again, I think it shows the, the true nature of, you know, where we are in that longing for, for the good quest. And, you know, it's interesting because we'll talk about this later, but I wouldn't necessarily consider this story to have a happy ending. I think it has a realistic ending to it that resolves the major conflict, but I don't necessarily think it's, you know, it's a fairy tale in that manner where you have the happy ending. Um, but we can we can talk about that down the road when we get to some of those other books. But it it does accurately reflect people and circumstances, virtues, the things that that make uh, life worth living. You know, Sam Sam's quote in the movie in the two towers where he he's giving his great speech about the stories. You know, we, we cheered for the characters, their stories made us compelled to follow them right to the very end. Um, you know, because they were good and the good was worth fighting for. And that's what we see in this book. You're hoping and rooting for the good guys. You're, you're never once rooting for Sauron to win. You're never once rooting for Saruman to win. You're always rooting for your champions and heroes to win in this. Yeah, and and Sauron, which is an interesting element, of course, is Sauron, Sauron is not really present, right, in any kind of uh, meaningful sense in the entirety of the book, right? Uh, really, I mean, in a lot of ways, he's more present in the in the films, just right. represented by that fiery tower thingy, right? Um, than he is with any sort of real, you know, you have the mouth of Sauron later on and stuff like that, but like. Yeah, in so it is a story about heroes, but it's a story about relatable people, people trying yeah. to do but relatable people in the in the midst of legends and myths or becoming yeah. myths and legends. So it's definitely very interesting in the way that that it's happened. But I've enjoyed this. I'm looking forward to talking to Two Towers. I'm looking forward to um, I guess just to remind everybody about uh, next week. Yep, and uh, that opportunity to do that. And I would say bring anything you want to talk about at all regarding Fellowship of the Ring whether that be the movie or the books. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. And uh, Nathan, you and I will, will be hammering out some details this week. We'll be getting up the, uh, the Zoom account time and all of that stuff. We'll be getting that ready to go for next week. So um, we're looking forward to seeing, seeing you all, uh, whoever, whoever wants to jump on. We're looking forward to that. We're going to have a huge setup ready to go with, different things. And like I said, Nathan, you and I will talk through some of those details, but I'm excited for this. I think, um, I think this is going to be good. I think we've got a good format and medium to do this in. And, uh, speaking of huge, how long did we go? So right now we are about at two hours and 17 minutes. Impressive. So, yep. Not quite the four hours that, uh, that you got into. No, Although I think we've gone this long once only one other time with a star Wars. Yes. It makes sense. So, yep. So before we sign off again, just one last reminder next week, we will uh, put out all the details and information and we'll be hyping it up all next week about our, our live get together. Um, and then also, you know, just feel free to throw us a review on your favorite listening service, iTunes, Twitter, Podbean, uh, Twitter, uh, iTunes, um, Stitcher, 
Podbean, Spotify, you know, wherever you listen to us on, just throw, throw a review, review on Twitter if you want. But. Yeah, you can throw a review on Twitter. We'll take it. We'll take it where we can get it. Um, but, you know, other than that, Nathan, this has been so much fun. Love discussing this with you. Looking forward, as you said, Two Towers, Return of the King. Um, and until next time, we just rock the Casbah. These go to 11.